What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Part 5, Chapter 24 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. The congratulations were over. As the visitors who had met at court went away, they talked about the latest news of the day, the rewards that had been bestowed, and the changed positions of some high functionaries. What should you say if the Countess Maria Borisovna was made Minister of War, and the Princess Vatkoskaya Chief of Staff? asked a little grey-haired old man in a gold-embroidered uniform, who was talking with a tall, handsome maid of honour about the recent changes. "'In that case I should be made one of the Emperor's aides,' replied the Fralina. "'Your place is already settled. You are to have charge of the Department of Religions, and Karinin is to be your assistant.' "'How do you do, Prince?' said the little old man, shaking hands with someone who came along. "'Were you speaking of Karinin?' asked the Prince. "'Yes.' He and Putyatov had been decorated with the order of Alexander Nevsky. I thought he had it already. No, look at him, said the little old man, pointing with his gold-laced hat toward Karinin, who was standing in the doorway, talking with one of the influential members of the Imperial Council. He wore the court uniform, with his new red ribbon across his shoulder. Happy and contented as a copper kopeck, he added, pausing to press the hand of a handsome, athletic chamberlain passing by. "'No, he has grown old,' said the Chamberlain. "'With cares. He spends all his time writing projects. He, the unfortunate man, will not let go until he has explained everything point by point.' "'What? Grown old? Il font de passants. I think the Countess Lydia is jealous now of his wife.' "'There. I beg you not to speak ill of the Countess Lydia.' "'Is there any harm in her being in love with Karinin?' Is it true that Madame Karenin is here? Not here, at the palace, but in Petersburg. I met her yesterday with Alexey Vronsky. Bras de zoo, bras de zos. On the Morskaya. C'est un homme qu'on n'est pas, began the Chamberlain, but he broke off short to salute and make way for a member of the imperial family who was passing. Thus they were talking about Alexey Alexandrovitch, criticizing and ridiculing him, while he himself was barring the way of the imperial councillor, and, without pausing in his explanations, lest he should lose him, was giving a detailed exposition of a financial scheme. Alexey Alexandrovitch, about the time his wife left him, had reached a situation painful for an official, the culmination of his upward career. This culmination had been reached, and all clearly saw it, but Alexey Alexandrovitch himself was not yet aware that his career was ended. Either his collision with Stremov, or his trouble with his wife, 
or the simple fact that Alexey Alexandrovitch had reached the limit that he had been destined to attain, the fact remained that everyone saw clearly that his official race was run. He still held an important place, he was a member of many important committees and commissions, but he was one of those men of whom nothing more is expected. His day was over. Whatever he said, whatever he proposed, seemed antiquated and useless. But Alexey Alexandrovitch himself did not realize this. On the contrary, now that he had ceased to have an active participation in the business of the administration, he saw more clearly than before the faults and mistakes that others were making, and considered it his duty to indicate certain reforms which should be introduced. Shortly after his separation from his wife, he began to write his first pamphlet about the new tribunals, and proposed to follow it up with an endless series of similar pamphlets, of no earthly use, on all the different branches of the administration. He not only did not realize his hopeless situation in the official world, and therefore did not lose heart, but more than ever he took delight in his activity. He that is unmarried is careful for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord, but he that is married is careful for the things of the world, how he may please his wife, said the Apostle Paul. And Alexey Alexandrovitch, who now directed his life in all respects according to the epistle, often quoted this text. It seemed to him that, since he had been deprived of his wife, he served the Lord more faithfully than ever by devotion to these projects. The imperial councillor's very manifest impatience and desire to get away from him in no way abashed Karenin, but he stopped a moment as a prince of the imperial family was passing, and his victim seized his opportunity to escape. Left to himself, Alexey Alexandrovitch bowed his head, tried to collect his thoughts, and, with an absent-minded glance about him, stepped toward the door, hoping to meet the countess there. "'How strong and healthy they look physically,' he said to himself, as he looked at the vigorous neck of the prince, who wore a close-fitting uniform, and the handsome chamberlain, with his well-combed and perfumed side-whiskers. "'It is only too true that all is evil in this world,' he thought, as he looked at the chamberlain's sturdy legs. Moving slowly along, Alexey Alexandrovitch, with his customary appearance of weariness and dignity, came up to the gentleman who had been talking about him, and glancing through the door, he looked for the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. "'Ah, Alexey Alexandrovitch!' cried the little old man, with a wicked light growing in his eyes as Karenin passed him with a cold bow. "'I have not yet congratulated you,' and he pointed to the newly received ribbon. "'I thank you. This is a fine day,' replied Alexey Alexandrovitch, accenting the adjective, procrasny, as was his habit. He knew that these gentlemen were making sport of him, but he expected nothing but hostile feelings, and he was accustomed to it. Catching the sight of the countess's yellow shoulders rising from her corsage as she appeared at the door, and her beautiful pensive eyes inviting him to join her, Alexey Alexandrovitch, with the smile which showed his even white teeth, went to her. Lydia Ivanovna's toilet had cost her much labor, like all her recent efforts in this direction, for the object of her toilet was now entirely the reverse of that which she had followed thirty years before. Formerly she had thought only of adorning herself, and the more the better. Now, on the contrary, she had to be adorned so unsuitably for her figure and her years that she simply endeavored to render the contrast between her person and her toilet not too frightful. And in Alexey Alexandrovitch's eyes she succeeded. He thought her fascinating. For him she, with the friendliness and even love for him, was the only island amid the sea of animosity and ridicule that surrounded him. As he was the gauntlet of scornful glances, he was naturally drawn to her loving eyes like a plant toward the light. 
I congratulate you, she said, looking at his decoration. Repressing a smile of satisfaction, Karenin shrugged his shoulders and half-closed his eyes, as if to say that this was nothing to him. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna knew well that these distinctions, even though he would not confess it, caused him the keenest pleasure. "'How is our angel?' she said, referring to Sorosa. "'I cannot say that I am very well satisfied with him,' replied Alexey Alexandrovitch, lifting his eyebrows and opening his eyes. And Sitnikov, a pedagogue who had been entrusted with Sorosa's childish education, does not please him. As I told you, I find in him a certain apathy toward the chief questions which ought to move the soul of every man and of every child. And Alexey Alexandrovitch began to discourse on a subject which, next to the question of administration, gave him the most concern, his son's education. When Alexey Alexandrovitch, with Lydia Ivanovna's aid, once more resumed his ordinary life and activity again, he felt it his duty to occupy himself with the education of the son who had been left on his hands. Having never before taken any practical interest in the question of education, Alexey Alexandrovitch consecrated some time to the practical study of the subject. After having read various works on anthropology, pedagogy, and didactics, he conceived a plan of education which the best tutor in Petersburg was then entrusted to put into practice, and this work constantly occupied him. Yes, but his heart. I find in this child his father's heart, and with such a heart he cannot be bad, said the countess with enthusiasm. Well, that may be. So far as in me lies, I perform my duty. It is all I can do. Will you come to my house? asked the countess Lydia Ivanovna, after a moment's silence. I have a very painful matter to talk with you about. I would have given the world to spare you certain memories. Others do not think the same. I had a letter from her. She is here in Petersburg. Alexey Alexandrovitch quivered at the recollection of his wife, but his face instantly assumed that expression of corpse-like immobility that showed how absolutely unable he was to treat of such a subject. I expected it, he said. The Countess Lydia Ivanovna looked at him with exultation, and in the presence of a soul so great, tears of transport sprang to her eyes. End of chapter 24 Part 5, Chapter 25 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel when Alexey entered the Countess Lydia Ivanovna's cosy little boudoir, decorated with portraits and old porcelains, he failed to find his friend. She was changing her gown. On a round table covered with a cloth stood a Chinese tea-service and a silver teapot with an alcohol lamp. Alexey Alexandrovitch glanced perfunctorily at the numberless paintings that adorned the room, then he sat down near a table and took up a copy of the New Testament which lay on it. The rustling of the Countess's silk dress put his thoughts to flight. "'Well, now, we can be a little more free from disturbance,' said the Countess, with a smile, gliding between the table and the divan. "'We can talk while drinking our tea.' After several words, meant to prepare his mind, she sighed deeply and— with a tinge of color in her cheeks, she put Anna's letter into his hands. He read it, and sat long in silence. "'I do not feel that I have the right to refuse her,' he said timidly, raising his eyes. "'My friend, you can never see evil anywhere,' 
On the contrary, I see everything is evil. But would it be fair to... His face expressed indecision, desire for advice, for support, for guidance, in a question so beyond his comprehension. No, interrupted the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, there are limits to things. I understand immorality, she said, not with absolute sincerity, since she did not know what could induce women to be immoral. But what I do not understand is cruelty toward anyone, toward you. How can she remain in the same city with you? One is never too old to learn, and I learn every day your grandeur and her baseness. Who shall cast the first stone? asked Alexey Alexandrovitch, evidently satisfied with the part he was playing. I have forgiven her for everything, and therefore I cannot deprive her of what is in need of her heart, her love for her son. But is it love, my friend? Is it sincere? Let us agree that you have forgiven her, and that you still pardon her. But have we the right to vex the soul of this little angel? He believes that she is dead. He prays for her, and asks God to pardon her sins. It is better so. What would he think now? I had not thought of that, said Alexey Alexandrovitch, perceiving the justice of her words. The countess covered her face with her hands and was silent. She was praying. If you ask my advice, she replied, after she had uttered her prayer and taken her hands from her face, you will do this. Do I not see how you suffer, how this opens all your wounds? But let us admit that you, as always, forget yourself. But where will it lead you? New sufferings for yourself, to torture for the child. If she were still capable of human feelings, she herself could not desire this. No, I have no hesitation about it. I advise you not to, and, if you give me your authority, I will reply to her. Alexey Alexandrovitch consented, and the Countess wrote, in French, this letter. Cher Madame, recalling your existence to your son would be likely to raise questions which it would be impossible to answer without obliging the child to criticize that which should remain sacred to him, and therefore I beg you to interpret your husband's refusal in the spirit of Christian charity. I pray the Omnipotent to be merciful to you. Comtesse Lydia this letter accomplished the secret aim which the countess would not confess even to herself. It wounded Anna to the bottom of her soul. Alexey Alexandrovitch, on returning home from Lydia Ivanovna's, found himself unable to take up his ordinary occupations, or recover the spiritual calm of a believer who feels that he is among the elect. The thought of his wife who had been so guilty toward him, and toward whom he had acted so like a saint, as the Countess Lydia Ivanovna had so well expressed it, ought not to have disturbed him, and yet he was ill at ease. He could not understand a word of the book he was reading. He could not drive away from his mind the cruel recollections of his relations to her, of the mistakes which, as it now seemed to him, he himself had made in his treatment of her. He remembered with a feeling like remorse the way he had received Anna's confession that day, when they were returning from the races— why had he demanded merely an outward observance of the proprieties? Why had he not challenged Vronsky to a duel? He was likewise tormented by his recollection of the letter which he wrote her at that time, especially his forgiveness of her, which had proved useless to anyone, and the pains which he had wasted on the baby that was not his, all came back to his memory and seared his heart with shame and regret. 
and exactly the same feeling of shame and regret she experienced now in reviewing all his past with her, and remembering the awkward way in which, after long vacillating, he had offered himself to her. "'But how am I at fault?' he asked himself, and this question immediately gave rise to another. "'Do other men feel differently? Fall in love differently? And marry differently? These Vronskys, Oblonskys, these Chamberlains with their handsome calves. His imagination called up a whole line of these vigorous men, self-confident and strong, who had always and everywhere attracted his curiosity and his wonder. He drove away these thoughts. He strove to persuade himself that the end and aim of his life was not this world, but eternity, that peace and charity alone ought to dwell in his soul. But the fact that in this temporal, insignificant life he had, as it seemed to him, made some humiliating blunders, tortured him as much as if that eternal salvation in which he put his trust did not exist. But this temptation was not long, and soon Alexey Alexandrovitch regained that serenity and elevation of mind by which he succeeded in putting away all that he wished to forget. End of chapter 25「Anna Karenina」by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel "'Well, Kapitanuitch,' said Sir Rosa, as he came in, rosy and gay, after his walk, on the evening before his birthday, while the old Swiss, smiling down from his superior height, helped the young man off with his coat. "'Did the bandaged Chnovchik come to-day?' Did Papa see him? Yes, the manager had only just got here when I announced him, replied the Swiss, winking one eye gaily. Permit me, I will take it. Sorosa, Sorosa, cried the Savafal tutor, who was standing by the door that led to the inner rooms. Take off your coat by yourself. But Sorosa, though he heard his tutor's weak voice, paid no heed to him. Standing by the Swiss, he held him by the belt, and looked him straight in the face. "'And did Papa do what he wanted?' the Swiss nodded. This Chinovnik, with his head in a bandage, who had come seven times to ask some favour of Alexey Alexandrovitch, interested Sir Rosa and the Swiss. Sir Rosa had met him one day in the vestibule, and overheard how he begged the Swiss to let him be admitted, saying that nothing was left for him and his children but to die. Since that time the lad had felt great concern for the poor man. "'Say, did he seem very glad?' asked Sorosa. "'Glad as he could be. He went off almost leaping.' "'Has anything come?' asked Sorosa, after a moment's silence. "'Well, sir,' whispered the Swiss, shaking his head, "'there is something from the Countess.' Sorosa instantly understood that what the Swiss meant was a birthday present from the Countess Lydia Ivanovna. "'What is it? Where is it?' "'Cornai took it to Papa. It must be some beautiful toy.' "'How big? As big as this?' "'Smaller, but beautiful. A little book?' "'No, a toy. Run away, run away. Vasily Lukitch is calling you,' said the Swiss, hearing the tutor's steps approach, and gently removing the little gloved hand which held his belt. "'In a bit of a moment, Vasily Lukitch,' said Zorosa, with the amiable and gracious smile to whose influence even the stern tutor submitted. Sir Rosa was in radiant spirits, 
and wanted to tell his friend, the Swiss, about a piece of good fortune which the Countess Lydia Ivanovna's niece had told him, while they were walking in the summer garden, had befallen the family. His happiness seemed greater still since he heard about the Chinovnik's success and his present. It seemed to Sarosa that everyone ought to be happy this beautiful day. "'Do you know, Papa has received the Alexander Nevsky order?' "'Why shouldn't I know? He has been receiving congratulations.' "'Is he glad?' "'How could he help being glad of the Tsar's favor? "'Of course he deserves it,' said the old Swiss, gravely. Sarosa reflected as he looked into the Swiss's face, which he knew even to the least detail, but especially the chin between his gray side-whiskers. No one had seen his chin except Sarosa, who looked up at it from below. "'Well, and your daughter? Isn't it a long time since she has been to see us?' The Swiss's daughter was a ballet dancer. "'How could she find time to come on work-days?' he exclaimed. "'They have their lessons as well as you, and you had better be off to yours, sir.' When Sarosa reached his room, instead of attending to his tasks, he poured out into the tutor's ears all his surmises about the present which had been brought him. "'It must be a locomotive engine. What do you think about it?' he asked. But Vasily Lukitch was thinking of nothing except the grammar lesson, which had to be ready for the professor, who came at two o'clock. "'No, but you must just tell me one thing, Vasily Lukitch,' asked the child, who was now sitting at his desk with his book in his hands. "'What is there higher than the Alexander Nevsky? You know that Papa has just received the Alexander Nevsky.' Vasily Lukitch replied that the order of Vladimir was higher. And above that? St. Andrew above them all. And above that? I don't know. Why don't you know? And Sarosa, leaning his head on his hand, began to think. The child's thoughts were very varied and complicated. He imagined that his father perhaps was going to have the orders of Vladimir and St. Andrew, and that therefore he would be the more indulgent for that day's lessons, and that he himself, when he grew up, would do his best to deserve all the decorations, even those that would be given higher than that of St. Andrew. A new order would scarcely have time to be founded before he would make himself worthy of it. These thoughts made the time pass so quickly that, when the professor came, his lesson about the circumstances of time and place and mode of action was not prepared at all, and the professor seemed not only dissatisfied, but distressed. His professor's distress touched Sarosa. He felt that he was to blame for not having learned his lesson. In spite of all his efforts, he really had been unable to do it. When the professor was talking to him, he imagined that he understood, but when he was alone, he really could not remember or comprehend that such a short and easy word as drug, suddenly, is a circumstance of the mode of action. But still he was sorry that he had tried his teacher. He seized on a moment when his teacher was silently looking into a book, to ask him, "'Mikhail Ivanovnitch, when will your birthday be?' "'You would better to think about your work. Birthdays have no importance for a reasonable being. It is only a day, just like any other, and must be spent in work.' Sarosa looked attentively at his teacher, studied his sparse beard, his eyeglasses far down on his nose, and got into such a deep brown study that he heard nothing of what the teacher was explaining to him. He had a dim comprehension that his teacher did not believe what he said. By the tone in which he said it, 
he felt that it was incredible. "'But why do they all try to say to me the most tiresome things, and the most useless things, and all in the same way? Why does this man keep me from him, and not love me?' he asked himself sadly, and he could not discover any answer. End of chapter 26「Part V, Chapter Twenty Seven of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. After the professor came the lesson with his father. Sarosa, while waiting for him, sat at the table, playing with his penknife, and he fell into new thoughts. One of his favorite occupations was to look for his mother while he was out walking. He did not believe in death as a general thing, and especially he did not believe that his mother was dead, in spite of what the Countess Lydia Ivanovna told him, and though his father confirmed it. And therefore, after they told him that she was dead, he used to watch for her while he was out for his walk. Every tall, graceful woman with dark hair he imagined to be his mother. At the sight of such a woman, his heart would swell with love, the tears would come into his eyes, and he would wait until the lady drew near him, and raised her veil. Then he would see her face. She would kiss him, smile upon him, he would feel the sweet caress of her hand, smell the well-known perfume, and weep with joy, as he did one evening when he lay at her feet, and she tickled him, and he laughed so heartily, and gently bit her white hand, covered with rings. Later, when he learned accidentally from the old nurse that his mother was alive, and that his father and the countess had told him that she was dead because she was a wicked woman, this seemed still more impossible to Sarosa, because he loved her, and he looked for her, and longed for her. That very day, in the summer garden, there had been a lady in a lilac veil, and, with his heart beating violently, expecting that it was she, he saw her take the same footpath where he was walking. But this lady did not come up to where he was, and she disappeared from sight. Sarosa felt a stronger love than ever for his mother, and now, while waiting for his father, he was cutting his desk with his penknife. With shining eyes he was looking straight ahead and thinking of her. "'Here comes your papa,' said Vasily Lukitch. Sarosa jumped up from the chair, ran to kiss his father's hand, and looked for some sign of pleasure because he had received the order of Alexander Nevsky. "'Did you have a good walk?' asked Alexey Alexandrovitch as he sat down in an armchair, taking up the Old Testament and opening it. Though he had often told Sarosa that every Christian ought to know the sacred history by heart, he had often to consult the Old Testament for his lessons, and Sarosa noticed it. "'Yes, Papa, I enjoyed it very much,' said Sarosa, sitting across his chair and tipping it, which was forbidden. "'I saw Nadenka,' Nadenka was the Countess's niece, whom she adopted, and she told me that they've given you a new star. Are you glad, Papa? In the first place, please don't tip your chair so, said Alexey Alexandrovitch. And in the second place, know that what ought to be dear to us is work for itself, and not the reward. I want you to understand that. If you work and study simply for the sake of receiving the recompense, the work will seem painful. But if you love work, your recompense will come of itself and Alexey Alexandrovitch remembered that on this very day he had signed one hundred and eighteen different papers, with no other support in a most unwelcome task than the feeling of duty. 
Sirosa's eyes, shining with affection and merriment, grew gloomy and dropped as his father looked at him. It was the same well-remembered way his father had adopted in his treatment of him, and Sirosa had already schooled himself to be hypocritical toward it. He felt that his father always spoke as if he were addressing some imaginary boy, one of those children found in books, and not in the least like Sirosa. And Sirosa, when he was with his father, tried to make believe that he was that bookish little boy. "'You understand this, I hope?' "'Yes, Papa,' replied the lad, playing the part of this imaginary little boy. The lesson consisted of the recitation of several verses of the Gospel, and the review of the first part of the Old Testament. The verses from the Gospel Sirosa knew fairly well, but, as he was in the midst of so repeating them, Sirosa was struck by the appearance of his father's forehead, which made almost a right angle near the temples, and he stumbled and transferred the end of one verse to the next verse, which began with the same word. Alexey Alexandrovitch concluded that he did not understand the meaning of what he was reciting, and he was vexed. He frowned, and began to explain what Sirosa had heard so many times that he could not help remembering, because he understood it too well, just as it was with the concept of the word verdrung, suddenly, being a circumstance of the mode of action. The child, with scared eyes, looked at his father and thought about only one thing. Would his father oblige him to repeat the explanation that he had given him, as he had done at other times? This fear kept him from understanding anything. Fortunately, his father passed on to the lesson in sacred history. Sirosa narrated the facts themselves very well, but when he was required to answer the question as to what the fact signified, he did not know it at all, though he had already been punished for this same lesson. The place where he could not recite and hesitated, and where he had whittled the table and rocked the chair, was the critical moment when he had to repeat the list of antediluvian patriarchs. Not one could he remember, not even Enoch, who was snatched up to heaven alive. On other occasions he could remember his name, but now he had entirely forgotten it, for the very reason that Enoch was his favorite character in all biblical history, and he connected with the translation of this patriarch a long string of ideas which completely absorbed him, while he was staring at his father's watch-chain and a loose button on his waistcoat. Sirosa absolutely disbelieved in death, though they had told him about it many times, he could not believe that those whom he loved could die, and especially incredible was the thought of his own death. It all seemed perfectly impossible and incomprehensible. But he had been told that all must die. He had asked people in whom he had confidence, and they had assured him that it was so. The nurse herself, though unwillingly, said the same thing. But Enoch did not die, and perhaps others might not have to die. Why should not others deserve justice before God? and so be snatched up to heaven alive, thought Sirosa. The wicked, those whom he disliked, might have to die, but the good might be like Enoch. Well, how about these patriarchs? Enoch? Enos? You have already mentioned him. This is bad, Sirosa, very bad. If you do not endeavor to learn the things essential for every Christian to know, what will become of you? asked his father, getting up. I am dissatisfied with you, and Pyotr Ignatyevich, he was the professor, is dissatisfied with you, so I am compelled to punish you. Father and Pedagogu both found fault with him, and Sirosa was doubtless making bad work of it. Yet it could not possibly be said that he was a stupid boy. On the contrary, 
he was far superior to those whom his teacher held up to him as examples. From his father's point of view, he did not want to learn what was taught him. In reality, it was because he could not learn it. He could not for the reason that his mind had needs more essential to him than those that his father and the pedagogus supposed. These needs were wholly opposed to what they gave him, and he revolted against his teachers. He was only nine years old. He was only a child. But he knew his own soul. It was dear to him. He guarded it jealously, as the eyelid guards the eye. And no one should force a way in without the key of love. His teachers blamed him for being unwilling to learn, and yet he was all on fire with the yearning for knowledge. And he learned from Kapitanuich, his old nurse, Nadenka, and Vasily Lukitch, but not from his teachers. The water which the father and the pedagogue poured into the mill-wheel was wasted, but the work was done in another place. His father punished Sorosa by not letting him go to see Nadenka, but his punishment turned out to be an advantage. Vasily Lukitch was in good humor, and taught him how to make windmills. The whole afternoon was spent in working and thinking of ways and means to make the mill go. Should he fix wings to it, or arrange it so he could turn it himself? He forgot about his mother all the evening, but after he had got to bed he suddenly remembered her, and he prayed in his own fashion that she might cease to hide herself from him and make him a visit the next day, which was his birthday. Vasily Lukitch, do you know what I prayed God for? To study better? No. Toys? No. You must not guess. It is a secret. When it comes to pass, I will tell you. Can't you guess? No, I can't guess. You must tell me, said Vasily Lukitch, smiling, which was rare with him. Well, get into bed. I'm going to put out the light. I see that which I prayed for much better when there isn't any light. There, I almost told my secret, cried Sarosa, laughing gaily. Sarosa believed that he heard his mother and felt her presence when he was in the dark. She was standing near him and looking at him tenderly with her loving eyes. Then he saw a mill a knife, then all melted into darkness, and he was asleep. End of chapter 27When Vronsky and Anna reached Petersburg, they stopped at one of the best hotels. Vronsky had a room to himself on the ground floor, Anna up one flight of stairs, with her baby, the nurse, and her maid, occupied a suite of four rooms. On the day of his return, Vronsky went to see his brother. He there found his mother, who had come down from Moscow on business. His mother and sister-in-law received him as usual, asked him about his travels, spoke of common friends, but not by a word did they make any allusion to Anna. His brother, however, who returned his call the next morning, asked him about her and Alexey. Vronsky declared in no equivocal terms that he considered the bond which united him to Madame Karenin the same as marriage, that he hoped a divorce would be obtained, and then he should marry her, but till that time he should regard her the same as his wife, and he asked him to explain this to his mother and sister-in-law. "'The world may not approve of me. That is all one to me,' he added. "'But if my family wish to remain on good terms with me, they must show proper respect for my wife.' 
the elder brother, always very respectful of his brother's opinions, was not very certain in his own mind whether he was doing right or not, and resolved to let society settle this question. But, as far as he himself was concerned, he saw nothing objectionable in this, and he went with Alexey to call on Anna. Vronsky spoke to Anna with the formal vous, you, as he always did before strangers, and treated her as a mere acquaintance, but it was perfectly understood that the brother knew of their relations, and they spoke freely of Anna's visit to Vronsky's estate. Notwithstanding his experience in society, Vronsky, in consequence of this new state of things, fell into a strange error. It would seem as if he ought to have understood that society would shut its doors on him and Anna, but now he persuaded himself by a strange freak of imagination that, however it might have been in former days, now, owing to the rapid progress made by society, and he had himself unconsciously become a strong supporter of progress, prejudices would have melted away, and the question whether they would be received by society would not trouble them. Of course, she would not be received at court, he thought, but our relatives, our friends, will understand things as they are. A man may sit for some time with his legs doubled up in one position, provided he knows that he can change it at pleasure. But if he knows that he must sit in such a constrained position, then he will feel cramped, and his legs will twitch and stretch out toward the desired freedom. Vronsky experienced this in regard to society. Though he knew in the bottom of his soul that society was closed to them, he made experiment whether it had changed and whether it would receive them. But he quickly found that, even if it were open to him personally, it was closed to Anna. As in the game of cat and mouse, the hands raised for him immediately fell before Anna. One of the first ladies of Petersburg society whom he met was his cousin Betsy. "'At last!' she cried joyously. "'And Anna, how glad I am! Where are you stopping? I can easily imagine the hideous effect our Petersburg must have on you after such a charming journey.' and I can imagine your honeymoon in Rome. And the divorce? Is it arranged? Vronsky saw that Betsy's enthusiasm cooled when she learned that there was no divorce as yet. I know well that I shall be stoned, said she, but I am coming to see Anna. Yes, I will certainly come. You won't stay here long, I imagine. In fact, she called on Anna that very day, but her manner was entirely different from what it used to be, she evidently prided herself on her courage, and wanted Anna to appreciate the genuineness of her friendship. After talking for about ten minutes on the news of the day, she got up, and said as she went away, "'You have not told me yet when the divorce is to be. Though I may disregard the proprieties, stiff-necked people will give you the cold shoulder, as long as you are not married. And it is so easy nowadays. C'est sa fête. Are you going Friday? I am sorry we shall not see each other again.' From Betsy's manner Vronsky might have got an idea of what he might expect from society, but he made still another experiment in his own family. He had no hope of any assistance from his mother. He knew well that, enthusiastic though she had been in honest praise at their first meeting, she would be relentless toward her now that she had spoiled her son's career. But Vronsky founded great hopes on Varya, his brother's wife. It seemed to him that she would not be one to cast a stone at Anna, but would come simply and naturally to see her. On the next day he called on her, and, finding her alone, he openly expressed his desire. 
"'You know, Alexey, how fond I am of you,' replied Barya, after hearing what he had to say. "'And how willing I am to do anything for you. But if I kept silent, it is because I know that I cannot be of the least use to you and Anna Arkadyevna.' She took special pains to use the two names. "'Please don't think that I judge her. Not at all. Perhaps I should have done the same thing in her place. I cannot enter into details,' she added, glancing timidly up at his clouded face. "'But we must call things by their right name. You would like me to go and see her, and then have her visit me, in order to restore her to society. But you must know, I cannot do it. My daughters are growing up. I am obliged, on my husband's account, to go into society. Now, I will go and call on Anna Arkadyevna, but she knows that I cannot invite her here, lest she should meet in my drawing-room people who do not think as I do, and that would wound her. I cannot receive her. But I do not admit that she has fallen lower than hundreds of women whom you receive, interrupted Vronsky, rising and seeing that his sister-in-law's decision was irrevocable. Alexey, don't be angry with me. Please understand, it is not my fault, said Barya, looking at him with a timid smile. I am not angry with you, but I suffer doubly, said he, growing more and more gloomy. I suffer because this breaks our friendship, or, at least, seriously impairs it, for you must know that for me this could not be otherwise. He left her with these words. Vronsky understood that further experiments would be idle, and that, during the few days he would still have to spend in Petersburg, he must act as if he were in a foreign city, avoiding all dealings with his society friends, so as not to be subjected to vexations and affronts which were so painful to him. One of the most unpleasant features of his position in Petersburg was the fact that Alexey Alexandrovitch and his name seemed to be everywhere. It was impossible for a conversation to begin on any subject without turning on Alexey Alexandrovitch. It was impossible to go anywhere without meeting him. So at least it seemed to Vronsky, just as it seems to a man with a sore finger, that he is always hitting it against everything. Their stay in Petersburg seemed to Vronsky still more trying, because all the time he saw that Anna was in a strange, incomprehensible moral frame of mind, such as he had never seen before. At one time she was more than usually affectionate. Then again she would seem cold, irritable, and enigmatical. Something was tormenting her, and she was concealing something from him, and she seemed not to notice the indignities which poisoned his life, and which, in her delicacy of perception, should have been even more painful for her. End of chapter 28「Part V, Chapter Twenty Nine of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna's chief desire on her return to Russia was to see her son. From the day she left Italy, the thought of seeing him again kept her in a constant state of excitement, and in proportion as she drew near Petersburg, the prospective delight and importance of this meeting kept growing greater and greater. She did not trouble herself with the question how she should manage it. It would be a simple and natural thing, she thought, to see her son once more, when she would be in the same town with him. But since her arrival, she suddenly realized her present relation toward society, and found that the interview was not easy to obtain. 
She had been two days now in Petersburg, and never for an instant had the thought of her son left her, but she had not seen him. She felt that she had no right to go straight to her former home and risk coming face to face with Alexey Alexandrovitch. She might not be admitted. She might be insulted. To write to her husband and ask permission of him seemed to her painful even to think of. She could be calm only when she did not think of her husband. To see her son when he was out taking his walk, even if she could find where and when he went, was too little for her. She had counted so much on seeing him again. She had so much to say to him. She had such a desire to hug him, to kiss him. Sir Rosa's old nurse might have been an assistance to her, and shown her how to manage, but she was no longer living in Alexey Alexandrovitch's house. On the third day, having learned of Alexey Alexandrovitch's intimate relations with the Countess Lydia Ivanovna, Anna decided to write her a letter, and this cost her the greatest pains to write. She told her frankly that permission to see her son depended on Alexey Alexandrovitch's magnanimity. She knew that if the letter were shown to her husband, he, in his part of magnanimous man, would not refuse her. The messenger that carried the letter brought back the most cruel and unexpected reply, that there was no answer. She had never felt so wounded as at the moment when, summoning the messenger, she heard from him the circumstantial story of how he had waited, and how, after a time, he had been told that there would be no answer. Anna felt humiliated, insulted, but she saw that, from her point of view, the countess was right. Her grief was all the keener because she had to bear it alone. She could not, and did not, wish to confide it to Vronsky. She knew that though he was the chief cause of her unhappiness, he would regard her meeting with her son as of little account. She knew that he would never be able to sound all the depths of her anguish. She knew that she should hate him for the unsympathetic tone in which he would speak of it. And she feared this more than anything else in the world, and so hid from him her action in regard to her son. She stayed at home all day long and racked her brain to think of other ways of meeting her son, and finally she decided to write directly to her husband. She had already begun her letter when Lydia Ivanovna's reply was brought to her. The countess's previous silence had humbled and affronted her, but the note and all she read between the lines so exasperated her, this bitterness against her seemed so shocking when contrasted with her passionate, legitimate affection for her son, that she grew indignant against the others and ceased to blame herself. "'What cruelty! What hypocrisy!' she said to herself. All they want is to insult me and torment the child. I will not let them do so. She is worse than I am. At least, I do not lie. She immediately decided to go on the morrow, which was Sir Rosa's birthday, directly to her husband's house. She would bribe the servants, and would make any kind of an excuse, if only she might once see her son and put an end to the ugly network of lies with which they were surrounding the innocent child. She went to a toy shop and purchased some toys, and thus she formed her plan of action. She would start early in the morning, at eight o'clock, before Alexey Alexandrovitch would probably be up. She would have the money in her hand all ready to bribe the Swiss and the valet to let her go upstairs without raising her veil, under the pretext of laying on Sir Rose's bed some presents sent by his godfather. As to what she should say to her son, she could not form the least idea. She could not make any preparation for that. The next morning, at eight o'clock, 
Anna got out of her hired carriage and rang the doorbell of her former home. "'Go and see what is wanted. It's some lady,' said Kapitonich, in loose coat and galoshes, as he looked out of the window and saw a lady closely veiled, standing on the porch. The Swiss's assistant, a young man whom Anna did not know, had scarcely opened the door before Anna pushed her way in, and, drawing a three-ruble note out of her muff, thrust it into his hand. "'Sir Rosa, Sergey Alexievich,' she stammered, and started down the vestibule. The Swiss's assistant examined the note, and stopped the visitor at the inner glass door. "'Whom do you wish to see?' he asked. She did not hear his words, and made no reply. Kapitanuitch, noticing the stranger's confusion, came out, led her into the entry, and asked her what she wanted. "'I come from Prince Skorodumov to see Sergey Alexievich.' "'He is not up yet,' replied the Swiss, looking sharply at her. Anna never dreamed that the absolutely unchanged appearance of the anteroom of the house, which for nine years had been her home, could have such a powerful effect on her. One after another, sweet and painful memories arose in her mind, and for a moment she forgot why she was there. "'Will you wait?' asked the Swiss, helping her to remove her shubka. When he saw her face, he recognized her, and without a word bowed profoundly. "'Will your ladyship be pleased to enter?' he said to her. She tried to speak, but her voice refused to utter a sound. Giving the old servant an entreating look, with light, swift steps, she went to the staircase. She flew up the stairs. Kapitanuitch tried to overtake her, and followed after her, catching his galoshes at every step. His tutor is here. Perhaps he is not dressed yet. I will speak to him. Anna kept on up the stairs which she knew so well, not heeding what the old man said. This way, to the left, if you please. Excuse it if it is all disorder. He sleeps in the front room now, said the Swiss, out of breath. Will your ladyship be good enough to wait a moment? I will go and see. And, opening the high door, he disappeared. Anna stopped and waited. He has just waked up, said the Swiss, coming back through the same door. And as he spoke, Anna heard the sound of a child yawning, and merely by the sound of the yawn she recognized her son, and seemed to see him alive before her. "'Let me go in. Let me,' she cried, and hurriedly pushed through the door. At the right of the door stood the bed, and on the bed a child was sitting up in his little open nightgown. His little body was leaning forward, and he was just finishing a yawn and stretching himself. His lips were just closing into a sleepy smile, and, with this smile, he slowly and gently fell back on his pillow. "'Sarosa!' she whispered, as she went noiselessly toward him. At the time of their separation, and during that access of love which she had been recently experiencing for him, Anna had imagined him as still a boy of four, the age when he had been the most charming. Now he no longer bore any resemblance to him whom she had left. He was still further removed from the four-year-old ideal. He had grown taller and thinner. How long his face seemed! How short his hair! What long arms! How he had changed since she had seen him last! But it was still Sarosa, the shape of his head, his lips, his little slender neck, his broad little shoulders. Sarosa, she whispered in the child's ear. He raised himself on his elbow, turned his disheveled head first to this side, then to that, as if searching for something, and opened his eyes. For several seconds he looked with an inquiring face at his mother, who stood motionless before him. Then he suddenly smiled with joy, 
and again closing his sleepy eyes, he threw himself, not back on his pillow, but into his mother's arms. "'So, Rosa, my dear little boy,' she cried, choking with tears and throwing her arms around his plump body. Mamma, he whispered, cuddling into his mother's arms so as to feel their encircling pressure. Smiling sleepily, still with his eyes closed, he took his chubby little hands from the head of the bed and put them on his mother's shoulder and climbed into her lap, having that warm breath of sleep peculiar to children, and pressed his face to his mother's neck and shoulders. I knew, he said, opening his eyes, Today is my birthday. I knew that you would come. I'm going to get up now. And as he spoke, he fell asleep again. Anna devoured him with her eyes. She saw how he had grown and changed during her absence. She knew, and yet she did not know, his bare legs, so much longer now, coming below his nightgown. She recognized his cheeks grown thin, his short hair curled in the neck where she had often kissed it. She could not keep her hands from him and not a word she was able to say, and the tears choked her. "'What are you crying for, Mamma? he asked, now entirely awake. "'What makes you cry?' he repeated, ready to weep himself. "'I will not cry any more. I am crying for joy. It is so long since I have seen you. But I will not. I will not cry any more,' she said, drying her tears and turning around. "'Now go and get dressed,' she added, after she had grown a little calmer, but still holding Sir Rosa's hand. She sat down near the bed on a chair which held the child's clothing. How do you dress without me? How— She wanted to speak simply and gaily, but she could not, and again she turned her head away. I do not wash in cold water any more. Papa has forbidden it. But you have not seen Vasily Lukitch? Here he comes. But you are sitting on my things. And Sir Rosa laughed heartily. She looked at him and smiled. Mamma, dear heart, darling, he cried, again throwing himself into her arms, as if now for the first time, having seen her smile, he clearly understood what had happened. You don't need it on, said he, taking off her hat. And, as if again recognizing her with her head bare, he began to kiss her again. What do you think of me? Did you believe that I was dead? I never believed it. You believed me alive, my precious. I knew it. I knew it, he replied, repeating his favorite phrase, and seizing her hand, which was smoothing his hair, he pressed the palm of it to his little mouth and began to kiss it. End of chapter 29Vasily Lukitch, meantime, not at first knowing who this lady was, but learning from their conversation that it was Sorosa's mother, the woman who had deserted her husband, and whom he did not know, as he had not come into the house till after her departure, was in great perplexity. Ought he go to his pupil, or should he tell Alexey Alexandrovitch? On mature reflection he came to the conclusion that his duty consisted in going to dress Sorosa at the usual hour, without paying any attention to a third person, his mother or anyone else. So he dressed himself. But as he reached the door and opened it, the sight of the caress between the mother and child, the sound of their voices and their words, made him change his mind. He shook his head, sighed, and quietly closed the door. 
I will wait ten minutes longer, he said to himself, coughing slightly and wiping his eyes. There was great excitement among the servants. They all knew that the Bryunia had come, and that Kapitonuich had let her in, and that she was in the child's room. They knew, too, that their master was in the habit of going to Sir Rosa every morning at nine o'clock. Each one felt that the husband and wife ought not to meet, that it must be prevented. Cornai, the valet, went down to the Swiss to ask why Anna had been let in, and, finding that Kapitonuich had taken her upstairs, he reprimanded him severely. The Swiss maintained an obstinate silence, till the valet declared that he deserved to lose his place, when the old man jumped at him, and, shaking his fist in his face, said, "'What is that? You would not let her in? You've served here ten years, and had nothing but kindness from her, but you would have said, "'No, go away from here.' You know what policy is, you sly dog. What you don't forget is to rob your master and carry off his raccoon-skin shubas. Soldier, replied Cornai, scornfully, and as he turned toward the nurse who was coming in just at this moment, What do you think, Marya Yefimovna? He has let in Anna Arkadyevna without saying anything to anybody, and just when Alexey Alexandrovitch, as soon as he is up, will be going to the nursery. What a scrape! "'What a scrape!' said the nurse. "'But, Kornai Vasilyevich, find some way to keep your master, while I run to warn her and get her out of the way. What a scrape!' When the nurse went into the child's room, Sorosa was telling his mother how Nadenka and he had fallen when sliding down a hill of ice, and turned three somersaults. Anna was listening to the sound of her son's voice, looking at his face, watching the play of his features, feeling his little arms, but not hearing a word that he said. She had to go away. She had to leave him. This alone she understood and felt. She had heard Vasily Lukitch's steps, and his little discreet cough, as he came to the door. And now she heard the nurse coming in. But, unable to move or to speak, she remained as fixed as a statue. "'Mistress, darling,' said the nurse, coming up to Anna and kissing her hands and her shoulders, "'God sent this joy for our birthday celebration. You are not changed at all.' "'Ah, oh, nurse, my dear, I did not know that you were in the house,' said Anna, coming to herself. "'I don't live here. I live with my daughter. I came to give my best wishes to Sorosa, Anna Arkadyevna, Galubushka.' The nurse suddenly began to weep, and to kiss Anna's hand. Sorosa, with bright, joyful eyes, and holding his mother with one hand and his nurse with the other, was dancing in his little bare feet on the carpet. His old nurse's tenderness toward his mother was delightful to him. "'Mamma, she often comes to see me, and when she comes—' he began, but he stopped short when he perceived that the nurse whispered something in his mother's ear, and that his mother's face assumed an expression of fear, and something like shame which did not go well with his mother. Anna went to him. "'My precious,' she said. She could not say the word, "'Preshai, farewell.' but the expression of her face said it, and he understood. "'My precious, precious Kutik,' she said, calling him by a pet name which she used when he was a baby. "'You will not forget me. You—' But she could not say another word. Only then she began to think of the words which she wanted to say to him, but now it was impossible to say them. But Sorosa understood all that she would have said. He understood that she was unhappy, and that she loved him. He even understood what the nurse whispered in her ear. He heard the words, always at nine o'clock, and he knew that they referred to his father, 
and that his mother must not meet him. He understood this, but one thing he could not understand. Why did her face express fear and shame? She was not to blame, but she was afraid of him, and seemed ashamed of something. He wanted to ask a question which would have explained this doubt, but he did not dare. He saw that she was in sorrow, and he pitied her. He silently clung close to her, and then he whispered, "'Don't go yet. He will not come for some time.' His mother pushed him away from her a little, in order to see if he understood the meaning of what he had said, and in the frightened expression of his face she perceived that he not only spoke of his father, but seemed to ask her how he ought to think about him. "'Sarosa, my dear,' she said, "'love him. He is better and more upright than I am, and I have been wicked to him. When you have grown up, you will understand.' "'Not better than you,' cried the child, with sobs of despair, and clinging to his mother's shoulders, he squeezed her with all his might till his arms trembled with the exertion. "'My darling, my little one,' exclaimed Anna, and bursting into tears she sobbed like a child even as he sobbed. At this moment the door opened, and Vasily Lukitch came in. Steps were heard at the other door, and in a frightened whisper he exclaimed, "'He is coming!' and gave Anna her hat. Sorosa threw himself on the bed, sobbing, and covered his face with his hands. Anna took them away to kiss yet once again his tear-stained cheeks, and then with quick steps hurried from the room. Alexey Alexandrovitch met her at the door. When he saw her, he stopped and bowed his head. Though she had declared a moment before that he was better and more upright than she, the swift glance that she gave him, taking in his whole person, with all its peculiarities, awoke in her only a feeling of hatred and scorn for him, and jealousy on account of her son. She hurriedly lowered her veil, and, quickening her steps, almost ran from the room. She had entirely forgotten in her haste the playthings which, she had bought with so much love and sadness, and she took them back with her to the hotel. End of chapter 30。Part 5, Chapter 31 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Eagerly as Anna had desired to see her son again, long as she had thought about it, prepared herself beforehand, she had no idea what an effect the sight of him would have on her. When she got back to her solitary room at the hotel again, she could not for a long time understand why she was there. Yes, all is over. I am alone again, she said to herself, and, without taking off her hat, she threw herself into an easy chair which stood near the fireplace. And, Fixing her eyes on the bronze clock standing on a table between two windows, she became absorbed in thought. The French maid, whom she had brought from abroad with her, came and offered to help her to dress. Anna looked at her with surprise, and replied, "'By and by.' A servant came to announce coffee. "'By and by,' she said. The Italian nurse came in, bringing the little daughter whom she had just dressed, the plump, well-nurtured little one, as always, when she saw her mother, lifted up her bare little arms with the palms down, and, smiling with her toothless little mouth, began to beat the air with her plump little hands like a fish waving its fins, and to pull at the starched tucks of her embroidered skirt. No one could help smiling back, or kissing the little girl, or letting her catch hold of one of her fingers, 
screaming with delight and jumping. No one could help pressing her lips for a kiss to the little sweet mouth. All this Anna did, and she took her in her arms, trotted her on her knee, and kissed her fresh cheek and bare elbows. But the sight of this child made her feel clearly that the affection which she felt for it was not the same kind of love that she had for Sarosa. Everything about this little girl was lovely, but somehow she did not fill the wants of her heart. In her firstborn, although he was the child of a man whom she did not love, was concentrated all the strength of a love which had not been satisfied. Her daughter, born in the most trying circumstances, had never received the one-hundredth part of the care which she had spent on Sarosa. Moreover, the little girl, as yet, only represented hopes, while Sarosa was almost a man, and a lovely man. He had already begun to struggle with his thoughts and feelings. He loved his mother, understood her, judged her, perhaps, she thought, recalling her son's words and looks, and now she was separated from him forever, morally as well as materially and she saw no way of remedying the situation. She gave the little one back to her nurse, and sent them away, and opened a locket containing Sir Rosa's picture about the same age as his sister. Then, removing her hat, she took an album in which were photographs of her son at different periods. She wanted to compare them, and she began to take them out of the album. She took all of them out. One was left, the last, the best photograph of him. It represented Sir Rosa astride a chair, in a white frock, a smile on his lips, and a shadow in his eyes, and it was his most characteristic, his best expression. Holding the album in her little deft hands, which to-day moved with extraordinary nervousness, she tried with her slender white fingers to take it from its place, but the photograph stuck, and she could not get at it. There was no paper-cutter on the table, and she took up another photograph at random, to push out the card from its place. It was a picture of Vronsky, taken in Rome, with long hair and a round felt hat. "'Ah, there he is,' she said to herself, and as she looked at him, she suddenly remembered that he was the cause of all her present suffering. Not once had she thought of him all the morning, but now suddenly the sight of this manly and noble face, which she knew and loved so well, brought a flood of affection to her heart. Yes. Where is he? Why does he leave me alone, a prey to my grief? she asked with bitter reproach, forgetting that she herself had carefully concealed with him everything concerning her son. She sent a message to him, asking him to come to her immediately, and waited, with heavy heart, thinking over the words with which she would tell him all, and the loving expression with which he would try to console her. The servant returned to say that Vronsky had a visitor, but that he would come very soon, and would like to know if she could receive him with Prince Yashvin, who had just arrived in Petersburg. "'He will not come alone, and he has not seen me since yesterday at dinner,' she thought. "'And he does not come so that I can speak with him, but he comes with Yashvin.' And suddenly a cruel thought crossed her mind. What if he no longer loved her? And as she went over in her mind all the incidents of the past few days, she found her terrible thought confirmed by them. The day before he had not dined with her, they did not have the same room, now that they were in Petersburg, and now he was bringing someone with him as if to avoid being alone with her. But he must tell me this. I must know it. If it is true, I know what I must do, she said to herself, 
wholly unable to imagine what would happen if Vronsky's indifference should prove to be true. She began to feel that he did not love her any more. She imagined herself reduced to despair, and in consequence her feelings made her overexcited. She rang for her maid and went into her dressing-room, and took extreme pains with her dress, as if the sight of her toilet and becoming way of dressing her hair would bring back Vronsky's love if he had grown indifferent. The bell rang before she was ready. When she returned to the drawing-room, not Vronsky, but Yashvin, looked at her. Vronsky was looking at Sir Rosa's picture, which she had left lying beside the table, and he did not hurry to greet her. "'We are old acquaintances,' she said to him, going toward him and placing her small hand in Yashvin's enormous hand. He was all confusion, and this seemed odd in a man of his gigantic form and decided features. "'We met last year at the races. Give them to me.' she said, snatching her son's photographs from Vronsky, who was looking at them, while her eyes blazed at him significantly. "'Were the races successful this year? We saw the races at Rome, on the Corso. But I believe you did not like life abroad,' she added, with a fascinating smile. "'I know you, and, although we seldom meet, I know your tastes.' "'I am very sorry for that, because my tastes are generally bad,' said Yashvin, biting the left side of his moustache. After they had talked some little time, Yashvin, seeing Vronsky look at his watch, asked Anna if she expected to be in Petersburg long. Then, bending down his huge back, he picked up his kepi. "'Probably not long,' she replied in some confusion, and looked at Vronsky. "'Then shall we not meet again?' said Yashvin, getting up and addressing Vronsky. "'Where are you going to dine?' "'Come and dine with me,' said Anna, with decision. And— vexed because she could not conceal her confusion whenever her false situation became evident before a stranger she blushed the table here is not good but you will at least see each other of all alexey's messmates you are his favorite i should be delighted replied yashvin with a smile which proved to vronsky that he was very much pleased with anna yashvin took leave of them and went away while vronsky lingered behind are you going too she asked him I am already late. Go ahead, I will overtake you, he shouted to Yashvin. She took his hand and, without removing her eyes from him, tried to find something to say to detain him. Wait, I, I want to ask you something, and she pressed Vronsky's hand against her cheek. Well, did I do wrong to invite him to dinner? You did quite right, he replied, with a calm smile which showed his solid teeth, and he kissed her hand. Alexey, do you feel changed toward me? she asked, pressing his hand between her own. Alexey, I am tired of staying here. When shall we go away? Soon. Very soon. You can't imagine how life here weighs upon me, too. And he drew away his hand. Well, go. Go away, she said in an injured tone, and quickly left him. End of chapter 31《パート5 Chapter 32 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain read by Marianne Spiegel When Vronsky came back to the hotel Anna was not there They told him that she had gone out with a lady who had come to call on her The fact that she had gone out without having left word where a thing which she had not done before 
the fact that she had also gone somewhere in the morning without telling him, all this coupled with the strange expression of excitement on her face that morning, the manner and the harsh tone with which she had snatched away her son's photographs from him before Yashvin, made Vronsky wonder. He made up his mind to ask for an explanation, and waited in the drawing-room for her return. Anna did not come back alone. She brought with her an old maiden aunt, the Princess Oblonskaya. She was the lady who had come in the morning, and with whom she had been shopping. Anna pretended not to notice the expression of Vronsky's face and his uneasy, questioning manner, and began to talk gaily about the purchases she had made in the morning. He saw that something unusual was the matter. In her shining eyes, as they flashed their lightning on him, there was evidence of mental strain, and in her speech and movements there was the nervous alertness and grace which in the first epoch of their relationship had so captivated him, but now they troubled and alarmed him. The table was laid for four, and, just as they were going to sit down in the little dining-room, Tuskievich came from the Princess Betsy with a message for Anna. The Princess Betsy sent her excuses for not coming in person to say good-bye to her. She was not well, and asked Anna to come to see her between half-past seven and nine o'clock. Vronsky looked at Anna as if he would draw her attention to the fact that in naming a time she had taken precautions against her meeting anyone, but Anna did not seem to pay any attention to it. "'I am very sorry, but between half-past seven and nine I shall not be at liberty,' she said with a slight smile. "'The princess will be very much disappointed.' "'So shall I.' "'I suppose you are going to hear Patty,' said Tushkievich. "'Patty? You give me an idea. I would go, certainly, if I could get a loge.' "'I can get you one,' suggested Tushkievich. "'I should be very much obliged to you,' said Anna. "'But won't you dine with us?' Vronsky shrugged his shoulders slightly. He did not know what to make of Anna. Why had she brought home the old princess? Why was she keeping Tushkevich to dinner? And, above all, why did she let him get her a box? Was it to be thought of for a moment that she, in her position, could go to the opera on a patty subscription night, when she would meet all her acquaintances there? He looked at her seriously, but she responded with a half-despairing, half-mocking look, the meaning of which he could not understand. All through dinner Anna was aggressively lively, and seemed to flirt both with Tushkevich and Yashvin. When they rose from the table, Tushkevich went to secure a box, but Yashvin was going to smoke, and Vronsky took him down to his own room. After some time Vronsky came upstairs again. Anna was already dressed in a light silk gown bought in Paris. It was trimmed with velvet and had an open front. On her head she wore costly white lace, which set off to advantage the striking beauty of her face. "'Are you really going to the theatre? he asked, trying to avoid looking at her. "'Why do you ask me in such a terrified way?' she replied, again hurt because he did not look at her. "'Why shouldn't I go?' She did not seem to understand the meaning of his words. "'Of course there is no reason for it,' said he, frowning. "'That is exactly what I say,' she replied, not wishing to see the sarcasm of his remark, and calmly putting on a long, perfumed glove. "'Anna, for heaven's sake, what is the matter with you?' he said to her, trying to bring her to her senses, as her husband had more than once done. "'I don't know what you mean.' "'You know very well that you can't go there.' "'Why not? 
I'm not going alone. The Princess Vervaria has gone to dress. She is going with me. He shrugged his shoulders with a look of perplexity and despair. But don't you know, he began. No, I don't want to know, she almost shrieked. I don't want to know. Am I sorry for anything I have done? No, 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 indeed. If it were to begin over again, I would begin over again. There is only one thing of any consequence to us, to you and me, and that is, do we love each other? Everything else is of no account. Why do we live separate here and not see each other? Why can't I go where I please? I love you, and everything is right, if your feelings have not changed toward me, she said in Russian, looking at him with a peculiar gleam in her eyes which he could not understand. Why don't you look at me? He looked at her. He saw all her beauty, of her face, of the toilet, which was so becoming to her. But now this beauty and this elegance were precisely what irritated him. You know very well that my feelings cannot change. But I beg you not to go out. I beseech you, he said again in French, with a prayer in his voice, but with a cold look in his eyes. She did not hear his words, but noticed only the coldness of his look, and replied with an injured air, and I, for my part, beg you to explain why I should not go. Because it may cause you... He grew confused. I don't understand at all. Yashvin, n'est-ce pas compromettante, and the Princess Vavaria is no worse than anybody else. Ah, here she is. End of chapter 32part 5 chapter 33 of anna karenina by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain read by marianne spiegel for the first time in his life vronsky felt toward anna a sensation of vexation bordering on anger on account of her intentional misunderstanding of her position this feeling was intensified by the fact that he could not explain the reason of his vexation if he had frankly said what was in his mind, he would have said, To appear at the opera, in such a toilet, with a notorious person like the princess, is equivalent to throwing down the gauntlet to public opinion, to confessing yourself a lost woman, and, consequently, renouncing all hope of ever going into society again. He could not say that to her. Why did she not understand it? What has happened to her? he asked himself. He felt at one and the same time a lessened esteem for Anna's character, and a greater sense of her beauty. With a dark frown he went back to his room and sat down with Yashvin, who, with his long legs stretched out on a chair, was drinking cognac and seltzer water. Vronsky ordered the same for himself. "'You spoke of Lanskov's Moguchi. He is a fine horse, and I advise you to buy him,' began Yashvin, glancing at his comrade's solemn face. His crupper is tapering, but what legs, and what a head! You couldn't do better. I think I shall take him, replied Vronsky. The talk about horses occupied him, but not for a moment was the thought of Anna absent from his mind, and he involuntarily listened for the sound of steps in the corridor, and kept looking at the clock on the mantel. Anna Arkadyevna left word that she has gone to the theatre, a servant announced. Yashvin poured out another little glass of cognac and seltzer, drank it, and rose, 
buttoning up his coat. "'Well, shall we go?' said he, half smiling beneath his long moustaches, and showing that he understood the cause of Vronsky's vexation, but did not attach much importance to it. "'I am not going,' replied Vronsky gloomily. "'I promised, so I must go. Well, das Vidanya, if you should change your mind, take Kransky's seat, which will be unoccupied,' he added as he went out. "'No, I have some work to do. A man has his trials with a wife, but with your not-wife it is even worse,' thought Yashvin as he left the hotel. When Vronsky was alone, he rose and began to walk up and down the room. "'Yes. Tonight, the fourth subscription night, my brother Igor will be there with his wife, and with my mother, probably. In fact, all Petersburg will be there. Now she is going in, and is taking off her shuba, and there she is in the light. Tushkevich, Yashvin, the Princess Vavara. He pictured the scene to himself. What am I to do? Am I afraid? Or have I given Tushkevich the right to protect her? However you may look at it, it is stupid. It is stupid. Why should she place me in this position? He said with a gesture of despair. This movement jostled the stand on which stood the seltzer water and the decanter with cognac, and nearly knocked it over. In trying to rescue it, he upset it entirely. He rang and gave a kick to the table. "'If you want to remain in my service,' he said to his valet, who appeared, "'then tend to your business. Don't let this happen again. Why didn't you take these things away?' The valet, knowing his innocence, wished to justify himself, but by one glance at his baron's face he realized that it was best for him to be silent, and, making a hasty excuse, he got down on the floor to pick up the broken glasses and water-bottles. "'That is not your business. Call a waiter, and get my dress-coat.' Vronsky entered the theatre at half-past nine. The performance was in full swing. The capeldenier, a little old man, took his fur-lined shuba, and, recognizing him, called him Your Excellency, and assured him that he needed not to take a number, but that all he had to do was to call for Fyodor. There was no one in the lighted lobby except the capeldenier and two valets with fur garments on their arms listening at the door. The sound of the orchestra playing staccato could be heard, carefully accompanying a woman's voice which was admirably rendering a musical phrase. The door opened and another capeldenier came tiptoeing out, and the phrase, as it was ending, came distinctly to Vronsky's ear. But instantly the door closed again, and he could not hear the ending of the phrase, or the cadenza, but from the applause that followed he knew that the aria was finished. The plaudits still continued as he went into the auditorium, brilliantly lighted with chandeliers and bronze gas fixtures. On the stage, the prima donna, with bare shoulders and glittering with diamonds, was bowing and smiling, and, with the assistance of the tenor, who gave her his hand, was bending forward to receive the bouquets that were thrust awkwardly at her over the footlights, and then she went toward a gentleman whose hair, shining with pomade, was parted in the middle, and who reached out his long arms to hand her some article. The whole audience, those in the boxes and those in the parquet, was wildly excited and leaning forward, shouting and clapping. The Kappelmeister, in his elevated stand, helped to pass it along, and straightened his white necktie. Vronsky went down to the middle of the parquet, and, 
pausing, looked through the audience. He paid less attention than ever to the familiar stage setting, to the stage, to the noise, to all that well-known, variegated, and uninteresting throng of spectators that was packed and crowded into the theatre. There were the same ladies in the boxes, with the same officers behind them, the same gaily dressed women, the same uniforms, and the same dress coats. In the gallery the same disorderly crowd, and in this closely packed house, in the boxes and in the front seats, were some forty genuine men and women. And Vronsky immediately turned his attention to this oasis, and occupied himself with it exclusively. The act was just over as Vronsky went toward the first row of seats, and stopped near the railing beside Serpukhovskoye, who, bending his knee and rapping against the rail with his heel, had seen him at a distance, and beckoned him with a smile. Vronsky had not yet seen Anna, and purposefully refrained from looking for her, but from the direction in which people were gazing, he knew where she was. He glanced round furtively, but did not search for her. Expecting something even worse, he looked to see if Alexey Alexandrovitch was there. To his joy, the latter was not at the theatre that evening. "'How unmartial you look!' said Serpukhovskoye. "'One would take you for a diplomat. An artist.' "'Yes, on my return home I put on citizen's dress,' replied Vronsky, slowly taking out his opera-glasses. "'In this respect I confess I envy you. When I return from abroad, I put these on,' said he, touching his epaulets. "'I mourn for my liberty.' Serpukhovskoye had long since given up trying to push Vronsky along in his military career, but he continued to have a warm affection for him, and he now seemed especially friendly toward him. It's too bad that you lost the first act. Vronsky, while listening with one ear, examined the boxes and the first tier of seats with his opera-glass. Suddenly Anna's head came into view, proud and strikingly beautiful, in its frame of laces, next to a lady in a turban, and a bald-headed old man, who blinked as he gazed through his opera-glass. Anna was in the fifth box, not more than twenty steps from him. She was seated in the front of the box, turning slightly away, and was talking with Yashvin. The poise of her head, her neck, her beautiful broad shoulders, the radiance of her eyes and face, all reminded him of her as she had looked that evening at the ball in Moscow. But her beauty inspired him with entirely different sentiment. There was no longer anything mysterious in his feeling for her. And so, although her beauty was more extraordinary than ever, and fascinated him, at the same time it was now offensive to him. She did not look in his direction, but he felt that she had already seen him. When Vronsky again directed his opera-glass toward the box, he saw the Princess Vivara, very red in the face, was laughing unnaturally, and kept looking at the next box. Anna, striking her closed fan on the red velvet, was looking away, evidently not seeing and not intending to see what was going on in the next box. Yashvin's face wore the same expression as when he lost at cards. He drew his left moustache more and more into his mouth, frowned, and was looking out of the corner of his eye into the same box. In this box were the Kartasovs. Vronsky knew them, and he knew that Anna, too, had been on friendly terms with them. Madame Kartasov, a little, thin woman, was standing with her back to Anna and putting on an opera cloak, which her husband handed to her. Her face was pale and angry, and she was saying something with great excitement. Kartasov, a stout, bald-headed man, 
kept looking at Anna and trying to calm his wife. When Madame Kartasov left the box, her husband lingered, trying to catch Anna's eye, and evidently desirous of bowing to her. But apparently she purposefully avoided noticing him, and leaned back to speak to Yashvin, whose shaven head was bent toward her. Kartasov went out without having bowed, and the box was left empty. Vronsky did not understand what had just passed between the Kartasovs and Anna, but he felt perfectly sure that something mortifying had happened to Anna. By the expression of her face he saw that she was summoning all her strength to keep up her part to the end, and to appear perfectly calm. And this semblance of external calm was put on to perfection. Those who knew nothing of her history and her circle, who had not heard her old friend's expression of indignation at her appearing in this way, in all the splendor of her beauty and of her toilet, would have admired her serenity and beauty, and never have suspected that this woman was enduring the same feelings of shame as a criminal experiences at the pillory. Knowing that something had taken place, but not knowing exactly what, Vronsky felt a sense of deep anxiety, and, hoping to learn something about the matter, went to his brother's box. He intentionally crossed the parquet, on the side opposite to Anna's box, and, as he went, ran across his former regimental commander, who was talking with two of his acquaintances. Vronsky heard the Karenin's name spoken, and noticed that the regimental commander hastened to call to him aloud, while he gave his friends a significant look. "'Ah, Vronsky, when shall we see you again in the regiment? We shan't let you off without a banquet. You are ours, every inch of you,' said the regimental commander. "'I shan't have the time now,' "'I'm awfully sorry. Another time,' replied Vronsky, going rapidly up the steps which led to his brother's box. The old countess, his mother, with her little steel-colored curls, was in the box. Varya and the young princess Sorokin were walking together in the lobby at the Bel Etage. As soon as she saw her brother-in-law, Varya went back to her mother with her companion and then, taking Vronsky's arm, immediately began to speak to him about the subject which concerned him. She showed more excitement than he had ever seen in her. "'I think it is dastardly and vile. Madame Kartasov had no right to do so. Madame Karenin,' she began. "'But what is the matter? I don't know what you mean.' "'What? You haven't heard anything about it?' "'You can well understand that I should be the last person to hear anything about it.' "'Is there a more wicked creature in the world than this Madame Kartasov?' "'But what did she do?' My husband told me about it. She insulted Madame Karenin. Her husband began to speak across from his box to Madame Karenin, and Madame Kartasov made a scene about it. They say she said something very offensive in a loud voice, and went out. "'Count, your maman is calling you,' said the young Princess Sorokin, opening the door of the box. "'I have been waiting for you all this time,' said his mother to him, with a sarcastic smile. "'We never see anything of you now.' The son saw that she could not conceal a smile of satisfaction. "'Good evening, maman. I was coming to see you,' he replied coolly. "'What? I hope you are not going faire la cour à Madame Karenine,' she added, when the young princess Sorokina was out of hearing. "'Elle font sensation. On oublie la petite pour elle. "'Maman, I have begged you not to speak to me about her,' he replied gloomily. I only say what everybody is saying. Vronsky did not reply, and, 
After exchanging a few words with the young princess, he went out. He met his brother at the door. "'Ah, Alexey,' said his brother, "'how abominable! She is a fool, nothing more. I was just wishing to go to see Madame Karinin. Let us go together.' Vronsky did not heed him. He ran hastily down the steps, feeling he ought to do something, but knew not what. He was stirred with anger, because Anna had placed them both in such a false position, and at the same time he felt deep pity for her suffering. He went down onto the parquet, and thence directly to Anna's loge. Stremov was leaning on the box, talking with her. "'There are no more tenors,' he said. "'Le moule en esbrise, the mould is broken, from which they came.' Vronsky bowed to her, and stopped, exchanging greetings with Stremov. "'You came late, it seems to me, and you lost the best aria,' said Anna to Vronsky, looking at him scornfully, as it seemed to him. "'I am not a very good judge,' he replied, looking at her severely. "'Like Prince Yashvin,' she said, smiling, "'who thinks Patty sings too loud.' "'Thank you,' she said, taking the program that Vronsky passed to her, in her little hand, encased in a long glove, and at the same moment her beautiful face quivered. She rose and went to the back of the box. The last act had hardly begun, when Vronsky, seeing Anna's box empty, left the parquet, though he was hissed for disturbing the quiet of the theatre while a cavatina was going on, and went back to the hotel. Anna was already in her room. When Vronsky went to her, she was sitting in the same toilet which she had worn at the theatre. She was sitting in the first chair she had come to, near the wall, looking straight before her. When she saw Vronsky enter, she glanced at him without moving. "'Anna,' he said. "'You! You are to blame for it all!' she exclaimed, rising with tears of anger and despair in her voice. "'I begged you, I implored you, not to go. I knew that it would be unpleasant to you.' "'Unpleasant!' she exclaimed. "'It was horrible! I shall not forget it as long as I live. She said that it was a disgrace to sit near me.' She was a stupid woman to say such a thing. But why did you run the risk of hearing it? Why did you expose yourself? I hate your calm way. You should never have driven me to this. If you loved me... Anna, what has my love to do with this? Yes, if you loved me as I love you, if you suffered as I... She said, looking at him with an expression of terror. He felt sorry for her, and yet he was vexed with her. He protested his love, because he saw that it was the only way to calm her, and he refrained from reproaching her, but in his heart he reproached her. And his expressions of love, which seemed to him so banal that he was ashamed of himself for repeating them, she drank in, and gradually became herself again. Two days later they left for the country, completely reconciled. End of chapter 33 and end of part 5 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. Part Six, Chapter One of Anna Karenina. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle Part Six, Chapter One Darya Alexandrovna, with her children, 
was spending the summer at Pokrovskoye, at the house of her sister, Kitty Levin. The house on her own estate, Yergoshevo, was all in ruins, and Levin and his wife had urged her to come to them for the summer. Stefan Arkadyevitch heartily approved of this arrangement. He assured them that he very much regretted that his duties would prevent him from spending the summer with his family in the country, for that would be the greatest possible delight for him, and if he stayed in Moscow he could occasionally run down for a day or two at a time. Besides the Oblonskys and all their children, the Levins had with them the old princess, who considered her presence near her daughter at this particular time indispensable. They had also Varenka, Kitty's sodden friend, who was fulfilling her promise of making Kitty a visit when she should have been married. All these were Kitty's relatives and friends. Levin, though he liked them all, still felt some regret for his own people and his own ways, which were swallowed up as in a flood of the Sherbatsky element, as he called it. Of his own relatives that summer, Sergey Ivanovitch was the only representative, and he was not a Levin, but a Koznuyshev, so that the Levin spirit was in a great discount. There were so many persons in the long deserted house that almost all the rooms were occupied, and almost every day the old princess, as she sat down at table, would count the guests and send off to the special table the grandson or granddaughter who made the number thirteen. And Kitty, diligently occupied with her housekeeping, found it no small burden to provide turkeys, chickens, and ducks for the satisfaction of the various appetites of young and old, made keen by the country air. The whole family were at table. Dolly's children were planning to go out and hunt for mushrooms with the governess and Varenka, when, to the great astonishment of all, Sergey Ivanovitch, who enjoyed along all the guests a great reputation, amounting almost to reverence, on account of his wit and learning, evidenced a desire to join the expedition. "'Allow me to go with you,' said he, addressing Varenka. "'I am very fond of getting mushrooms. I think it is a very admirable occupation.' "'Why, certainly. We shall be very glad,' she answered, blushing. Kitty exchanged looks with Dolly. The proposition of the learned and intellectual Sergey Ivanovitch to go with Varenka after mushrooms confirmed an idea which had been engaging Kitty for some time. She hastened to say something to her mother so that their looks might not be observed. After dinner, Sergey Ivanovitch was sitting at the drawing-room window with his cup of coffee, still talking with his brother on some topic which they were discussing, but he kept his eyes on the door through which the children would have to pass when they should start after the mushrooms. Levin was sitting at the window near his brother. Kitty was standing near her husband, evidently expecting the end of a conversation which did not interest her, so that she might say something to him. "'You have changed a good deal since you were married, and for the better,' said Sergey Ivanovitch, smiling at Kitty, and evidently not taking much interest either in the conversation, but at the same time he remained true to his passion for defending the most paradoxical themes. "'Katya, it is not well for you to stand,' said her husband, moving up a chair for her and giving her a significant look. "'Well, we will finish this some other time,' said Sergey Ivanovitch, as he saw the children come running out. In advance of the rest, galloping sidewise in her tightly fitting stockings, came Tanya, waving a basket, and Sergey Ivanovitch's hat. Boldly darting up to him, and with sparkling eyes—they were just like her father's handsome eyes— 
she gave Sergey Ivanovitch his hat, and made believe that she was going to put it on him, tempering her audacity with a timid and affectionate smile. Varenka is waiting, said Tanya, carefully putting his hat on his head, seen by Sergey Ivanovitch's smile that she might do so. Varenka was standing at the door. She had put on a yellow muslin frock, and had tied a white hat over her head. "'I am coming. I am coming, Vavara Andreyevna,' cried Sergey Ivanovitch, finishing his cup of coffee and putting his handkerchief and cigarette-case into his pocket. "'Isn't Varenka charming?' asked Kitty of her husband, as Sergey Ivanovitch got up. She said this so that he might hear, for this was what she especially wanted. And how pretty she is, royally pretty. Varenka, cried Kitty, are you going to the woods by the mill? We will join you there. You really forget your condition, Kitty, said the old princess, warningly, as she came hastily to the door. You ought not to shout so loud. Varenka, on hearing Kitty's voice and the princess's reproof, came up to them with quick, light steps. Her quickness of motion, the bright color that flushed her cheek, all proved that some metamorphosis was taking place in her. Kitty knew that this was something unusual, and she watched her attentively. She now called Varenka only for the sake of bestowing on her a silent benediction, in the interest of an important event which she firmly believed would take place that day in the woods. Varenka, I shall be very glad if a certain thing comes to pass, she said to her in a whisper, and giving her a kiss. Are you coming with us? asked Varenka of Levin, confused, and pretending that she had not heard what had been said. Yes, but only as far as the barns. I shall have to stop there. What do you propose to do there? asked Kitty. I have some new carts to examine and test. And where shall I find you? On the terrace. End of chapter 1「Part six, Chapter Two of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. All the women were gathered on the terrace. They generally liked to sit there after dinner, but today they had a special matter of interest before them. Besides the making of baby shirts and the knitting of bands, in which all of them were engaged at that time, they were engaged in superintending the cooking of some preserves after a recipe unknown to Agafya Mihalovna. Kitty had brought with her this new process, which had been used in her own home, and required no water. Agafya Mihalovna, who had before been shown how to do it in this way, considering that what had always been done at the Levens could not be improved on, insisted on pouring water into the berries, declaring it could not be made otherwise. She had been detected doing this, and now the berries were cooking in the presence of them all, and Agafya Mikhailovna was to be brought to a realizing sense of the fact that the preserves could be made without the use of the water. Agafya Mikhailovna, with flushed and heated face and disheveled hair, and with her sleeves rolled up to the elbow, was moving a porringer round and round over a portable stove and looking gloomily at it, wishing with all her soul that the berries would thicken and not boil. The old princess, conscious that Agafya Mikhailovna's indignation must be directed against her as the chief adviser in the concoction of the sweetmeat, pretended that she was busy with something else, and was not interested in it. But though she talked of extraneous affairs, she occasionally glanced at the cooking out of the corner of her eyes. 
I always buy my girls' dresses at a cheap shop, the princess was saying, in regard to something they had been talking about. Hadn't you better take off the scum, my dear, she added, addressing Agafya Mikhailovna. It is not at all necessary for you to do it, and it is hot, said she, stopping Kitty. I will do it, said Kitty, who had got up and was carefully stirring the boiling sugar with a spoon, occasionally pouring out a little on a plate, which was already covered with a variegated yellowish-red and sanguine scum, mixed with syrup. How they would like to lick it, she said to herself, thinking of her children, and remembering how she herself, when she was a little girl, had wondered that grown-up people did not feed upon that best of all things, scum. Steva says it is far better to give money, Dolly was saying, in regard to the question of making presents, which they had been discussing. But— "'How can one give money?' exclaimed the mother and Kitty simultaneously. "'They despise it.' "'Well, for example, last year I bought our Matryona Semyonovna, not a poplin, but some of that kind,' said the princess. "'I remember she wore it on your name-day. "'A lovely figure, so simple and ladylike. "'I should have liked one of it myself, if she had not one, "'like the kind Varenka wears, so pretty and cheap.' "'Now I think it is done,' said Dolly, dropping the syrup from the spoon. "'When it crystallizes, it is done. Cook it a little more, Agafya Mikhailovna.' "'What an absurdity!' exclaimed Agafya Mikhailovna. "'It would be the same anyway,' she added. "'Oh, what a beauty he is! Don't scare him!' suddenly exclaimed Kitty, looking at a sparrow which perched on the rail, and, turning the heart of a berry over, began to peck at it. "'Yes, but you ought to be farther away from the charcoal,' said her mother. "'Apropos de Varenka,' said Kitty in French, in which language, indeed, they had been speaking all the time, so that Agafya Mikhailovna might not understand them. "'Do you know, maman, that I somehow expect something decided? You know what I mean. How nice it would be!' "'What a master-hand at matchmaking you are!' exclaimed Dolly. "'How adroitly she has brought them together!' "'No,' "'But tell me, maman, what do you think of it?' "'What do I think of it? "'He can at any time have his choice of all the best in Russia.' "'By he,' she meant Sergey Ivanovitch. "'He is not so young as he was. "'But still, I know many would set their caps for him. "'She is very good, but he might—' "'No, indeed, you know perfectly well "'that nothing better could be imagined for either of them. "'In the first place, she is charming.' said Kitty, bending down one finger. "'She pleases him very much, that is true,' said Dolly, in confirmation. "'In the next place, he has such a position in the world that it would make no difference to him what his wife's property or social standing was. He needs only one thing—a sweet, pretty, even-tempered wife.' "'Yes, he might be very happy with her,' said Dolly, in confirmation of this also. "'In the third place, she must love him.' and so it is now, and so it would be perfectly lovely. I expect when they come in from the woods it will all be decided. I shall read it instantly in their eyes. I should be so glad. What do you think about it, Dolly? Don't get so excited. You really must not get so excited, said her mother. But I am not excited, Mamma. I think that he will surely propose to her today. Oh, how strange it is how and when a man proposes— even if there is an obstacle, it is suddenly swept away, said Dolly, 
smiling pensively and recalling the old days with Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'Mamma, how did Papa propose to you?' asked Kitty, suddenly. "'There was nothing extraordinary about it, very simply,' replied the princess, but her face grew all radiant at the remembrance. "'No, but how was it? And did you love him before you allowed him to speak?' Kitty found a special charm in the fact that now she could talk with her mother, as with an equal, on the most important questions in the lives of women. Of course I loved him. He came to visit us in the country. But how was it decided, Mamma? Do you really think that you young people have invented something new? It is always one and the same thing. It is decided by looks and smiles. How well you describe it, Mamma. That is just it, by looks and smiles, said Dolly, confirming what her mother had said. But what words did he say? What words did Costa say to you? He wrote in chalk. How long it seems since then, said Kitty. And the three ladies sat occupied with the same thought. Kitty was the first to break the silence. She had been thinking about that long past winter before her marriage and her infatuation for Vronsky. There is one thing, Varenka's first love, said she, remembering this by a natural connection of thought. I wanted to give Sergey Ivanovitch a hint of that to warn him. All men, she added, are awfully jealous of our past. Not at all, said Dolly. You judge by your husband. I believe he is even now tormented by the remembrance of Vronsky. Isn't that so? He is, replied Kitty, with a pensive smile in her eyes. Well, I don't know what there is in your past life to disquiet him, exclaimed the princess, her mother, resenting the inference that her maternal vigilance was called in question. Is it because Vronsky paid you some attention? That happens to every young girl. Yes, but we were not talking about that, said Kitty, blushing. No, permit me to finish what I was saying, pursued the princess. And besides, you yourself would not permit me to have an explanation with Vronsky. Do you remember? Oh, Mamma! exclaimed Kitty, with an exclamation of pain. There is no need of your being vexed. Your behavior toward him could never have been anything but perfectly proper. I myself should have challenged him. However, my darling, don't allow yourself to get excited. Please remember this, and calm yourself. I am perfectly calm, Maman. How fortunate it turned out for Kitty that Anna appeared on the scene, said Dolly, and how unfortunate for her. How their positions are reversed, she added overwhelmed by her own thought. Anna was so happy then, and Kitty thought herself so miserable. I often think of her. What a complete change! What is the use of thinking about her? She is a vile, disgusting, heartless woman, exclaimed the princess, who could not forget that Kitty had married Levin instead of Vronsky. What is the good of speaking about her, anyway? said Kitty, in disgust. I do not think about her nor do I wish to think of her at all. I do not wish to think about her, she repeated, hearing her husband's well-known step on the steps leading to the terrace. Whom do you wish not to think about? asked Levin, appearing on the terrace. No one answered, and he did not repeat his question. I am sorry that I am disturbing your feminine realm, said he, looking angrily at them all, and perceiving that they were talking about something which they would not talk about in his presence. For an instant he felt that he shared Agafya Mikhailovna's sentiments. 
her dissatisfaction at the Sherbatsky's way of making preserves without water, and especially the alien regime of his wife's family. Nevertheless, he smiled and went up to Kitty. "'Well, how is it?' he asked, looking at her with the same expression everyone used in addressing her. "'All right,' said Kitty, with a smile. "'And how is it with you?' "'The three-horse team will take a larger load than we could put on the Talyega. "'Shall we go to meet the children?' I have ordered the men to harness. "'What? Are you going to take Kitty in the Lenyeka?' exclaimed the princess reproachfully. "'We shall walk the horses, princess.' Levin never called the princess Maman, as his brothers-in-law did, and the princess resented it. But Levin, though he loved and respected her, could not call her so without doing violence to his feelings toward the memory of his own mother. "'Come with us, Maman,' said Kitty. I do not wish to countenance such imprudence. Well, then, I will walk. That is good for me, said Kitty, rising to take her husband's arm. Good for you? But there's reason in all things, said the princess. Well, Agafya Mikhailovna, are your preserves done? Is the new method good? asked Levin, smiling at the housekeeper in his desire to cheer her. Perhaps they're good, but, in my opinion, much overdone. "'There's one thing about them that's better, Agafya Mikhailovna. "'They won't spoil,' said Kitty, divining her husband's intention, "'and with the same feeling addressing the old servant. "'And you know the ice in the ice-house is all melted, "'and we can't get any more. "'As for your spiced meats, Mama assures me that she has never eaten any better,' "'she said, adjusting, with a smile, the housekeeper's loosened neckerchief. "'Agafya Mikhailovna looked angrily at Kitty.' Do not try to console me, Baronya. To see you with him is enough to content me. This familiar way of speaking of her master touched Kitty. Come, and show us the best places to find mushrooms. The old woman raised her head, smiling, as if to say, One would gladly guard you from all hatred, if it were possible. Follow my advice, please, and put over each pot of jelly a round piece of paper soaked in rum, and you will not need ice in order to preserve them, said the princess. End of chapter 2 Part 6, Chapter 3 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Kitty was especially glad of the opportunity to be alone with her husband because she had noticed how a shadow of dissatisfaction had crossed his tell-tale face when he stepped on the terrace and asked what they were talking about, and no one replied. As they walked along in front of the others, and, losing sight of the house, took to the well-trodden, dusty road, bestrewn with rye and corn, she seized his hand and pressed it against her side. He had already forgotten the momentary unpleasant impression, and now that he was alone with her, and while the thought of her approaching maternity did not for an instant escape from his mind, he experienced a novel joy in the sense of the presence of a beloved woman, a joy perfectly free from anything sensual. There was nothing special to talk about, but he liked to hear the sound of her voice, which, like the expression of her eyes, had changed owing to her condition. In her voice, and in her eyes, there was a gentleness and gravity like that which people show when their attention has been concentrated on some one favorite task. "'You are not getting tired, are you? Lean on me more,' 
said he. No, I am so glad to have a chance to be alone with you, and I confess that I miss our winter evenings when we two were alone together, much as I enjoy having them here. That was good, but this is better. Both are better, said he, pressing her hand. Do you know what we were talking about when you came? About preserves? Yes, about preserves, but afterward about the way men propose. Ah, said Levin, listening rather to the sound of her voice than to the words which she spoke, and all the time thinking of the road which they were following down to the forest, and carefully avoiding the places that might cause her to stumble. But how about Sergey Ivanovitch and Varenka? Have you noticed it? I very much wish it might come about, she went on to say. What do you think about it? And she glanced into his face. I don't know what to think, replied Levin, with a smile. Sergey, in this respect, was always a mystery to me. I think I told you about it. Yes, that he was in love with a young girl, but she died. That was when I was a child. I knew it by tradition. I remember him as he was then. He was wonderfully charming. But since then I have watched him with women. He is polite. He likes some of them. But you can't help feeling that for him they are merely people, not women. Yes. But now in the case of Varenka, it seems to me there is some... Maybe there is. But one must know him. He is a peculiar, a remarkable man. He lives only a spiritual life. He is too pure and high-minded a man. What do you mean? How could this bring him to a lower level? I don't say it would, but he is so accustomed to live a spiritual life only that he cannot reconcile himself to what is matter-of-fact, and Varenka is quite matter-of-fact. Levin, by this time, had become accustomed to speak his thoughts with all freedom, not taking pains to couch it in explicit words. He knew that his wife in such moments of intimate communion as now would understand what he expressed by a hint, and she did understand him. Yes, but she has none of that practicality such as I have. I can understand that he would never fall in love with me. She is all soul. That is not so. He is so fond of you. And I am always so glad that my friends like you. Yes, he is kind to me. But, but not as it was with our lamented Nikolenka. You loved each other, said Levin, in conclusion. But why not speak it out, he added. I often reproach myself that one so quickly forgets. Oh, what a terrible, what a fascinating man he was. But what were we talking about, said Levin, after a silence. You mean that he is incapable of falling in love, said she, expressing her husband's thought in her own way. I did not say that, but he has none of that weakness which is requisite, and I always have envied him, and envy him still, in spite of my happiness. You envy him because he is incapable of falling in love? I envy him because he is better than I am, said Levin, smiling. He does not live for himself. It is duty which guides him and so he has a right to be serene and well satisfied. And you, asked Kitty, with a mischievous smile. He could never follow the course of her thoughts when they caused her to smile. But the last deduction was that her husband, who had the greatest admiration for his brother, 
and who humbled himself before him, was insincere. Kitty knew that this insincerity of his was caused by his love for him, from a sort of conscientious scruple at being too happy, and especially from a never-ceasing desire to be better, and she loved this in him, and that was why she smiled. "'But why should you be dissatisfied?' she asked, with the same smile. Her disbelief in his self-dissatisfaction pleased him, and he unconsciously provoked her to explain the reasons for her unbelief. "'I am happy, but I am dissatisfied with myself,' said he. "'How can you be dissatisfied, if you are happy?' "'How can I express it? In my heart of hearts I wish nothing else except that you should not stumble.' "'Oh, you must not jump so!' he exclaimed, interrupting his argument with reproach, because she had made a too vivacious motion in jumping over a branch which lay in the path. "'But when I criticize myself, and compare myself with others, especially with my brother, I am conscious of all my inferiority.' "'But why?' persisted Kitty, with the same smile. "'Aren't you always doing for others? And your farming, your book?' "'Yes, I feel this especially now, and you are to blame,' said he, pressing her hand. I do this so, so superficially. Ah, if I could love all this work as I love you! But of late I work on it as if it were a task imposed on me. But what do you say about Papa? asked Kitty. Is he unworthy because he does nothing for the Commonwealth? He? Oh, no! But one must have just such simplicity, transparency, goodness, as he has. But I haven't have I? If I do not work, I am tormented. Tis you who have made it so. If it were not for you, and if it were not for what is coming, said he, with a significant glance at her figure, I should devote all my powers to this work. But now I can't, and my conscience pricks me. I do it like a task. It is all pretense. Would you like to exchange with Sergey Ivanovitch? asked Kitty. Would you like to work for nothing but your duty, and the general welfare of mankind? Of course not. The fact is, I am so happy that I can't reason clearly. So you think the proposal will take place today, do you? He asked, after a moment's silence. I think so, and then I think not. But I wish with all my heart it might. Here, wait. She stooped down and plucked a daisy growing by the roadside. Now count. He'll propose? He'll not propose, said she, giving him the flower. He'll propose? He'll not propose, repeated Levin, picking off the narrow, white, trembling petals. No, no, cried Kitty, stopping him and seizing his arm, as she excitedly watched his fingers. You pulled off too. Well, that little one doesn't count, said Levin, tearing off a short, undeveloped petal. But here comes the Lenyenka to meet us. Kitty, you haven't fatigued yourself, cried the princess. Not the least in the world, mamma. Well, get in, if the horses are quiet and we'll walk. But there was no need of riding. The place was so near, they continued walking. End of chapter 3「ドイル」「Chapter Four of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy」「Varenka 
in her white kerchief setting off her dark locks and surrounded by children whom she was good-naturedly and gaily entertaining and evidently excited by the possibility of a declaration from a man who was agreeable to her was very fascinating sergey ivanovitch walked by her side and could not help admiring her as he looked at her he recalled all the pleasant remarks he had heard her make all the goodness that he had found in her and he confessed to himself more and more that the feeling which she aroused in him was something peculiar like what he had experienced once only long long before in his early youth the feeling of pleasure at being near her kept growing stronger and at last when as he put into her basket a monstrous birch mushroom with thin stem and edges he looked into her eyes and noticing the blush of pleasure and timid emotion which spread over her face he himself grew confused and smiled with a mute smile which said too much if this is the way it is going i must deliberate and come to a decision and not give way like a child to the impulse of a moment i am going now to hunt for mushrooms independently of the rest of you otherwise my acquisitions will not be noticed said he and he went off by himself from the edge of the woods where they had been walking along the velvety turf among the old birch trees scattered here and there in the forest together with the grey trunks of aspens and dark clumps of hazelnuts going off forty steps or so and coming to a clump of the bush called Beresklet, which was in full flower with its rosy catkins sergey ivanovitch sheltered himself behind it knowing that he would not be seen around him it was perfectly still only up in the treetops above his head ceaseless like a swarm of bees buzzed the flies and occasionally he heard the voices of the children suddenly not far from the edge of the woods rang out varenka's contralto voice calling grisha and a happy smile spread over sergey ivanovitch's face when he realized what he was doing he shook his head disapprovingly at his state of mind and taking out a cigar he began to smoke it was some time before he could light a match against the bowl of a birch tree the juicy scales of the white bark dampened the phosphorus and the match refused to burn at last one of the matches took fire and the fragrant cigar smoke like a wide wavering scarf floated up and away above the bush under the pendant twigs of the birches as he followed the whiff of smoke with his eyes sergey ivanovitch slowly walked on thinking over the situation and why should i not he asked himself if this was a caprice of passion if i had experienced only this attachment this mutual attachment for i may call it mutual and if i felt that it would run counter to the whole scheme of my life if i felt that in giving way to this impression i should change my calling and duty then it would not do at all the one thing that i can bring against it is that when i lost marie i vowed that i would never marry in remembrance of her this is the only thing that i can say against this feeling this is serious said sergey ivanovitch to himself but at the same time he recognized that this consideration had personally for him no great importance but would simply spoil in the eyes of others the poetic role which he had been keeping up so long but besides this no matter how long i searched i should never find out what would be said against my feeling if i used all my wits i could never find any one better 
Among all the women and girls whom he had ever known, he could not think of one who united to such a high degree all, yes, verily, all the qualities which in a cold calculation he should wish to see in his wife. She had all the freshness and charm of youth, and yet she was no longer a child. And if she loved him, she loved him sensibly, as a woman ought to love. This was one thing. Another was, she was not only far removed from worldly-mindedness, but evidently found fashionable society distasteful. But at the same time she knew society well, and had all those ways of a woman of good society, lacking which married life for Sergey Ivanovitch was unthinkable. Thirdly, she was religious, but not like a child, irresponsibly religious and good, as Kitty, for example, was, but her life was founded on religious convictions. Even in trifles, Sergey Ivanovitch found in her all that he desired in a wife. She was poor and unencumbered, so that she would not bring a throng of relatives and their influence into her husband's home, as he saw was the case with Kitty. But she would be in everything pledged to her husband, which was one of the conditions which he had demanded for himself in case he ever had any family life. And this young woman, having all these qualities, loved him. He was modest, but he could not help seeing this. And he liked her. One obstacle stood in the way his age. But his family were long-lived. He had not as yet a single gray hair. No one took him to be more than forty, and he remembered that Varenka had said that only in Russia men of fifty considered themselves old, while in France a man of fifty reckoned himself dans la force de l'âge, and one of forty was un jeune homme. But what signified his years when he felt himself as young in spirit as he had been twenty years before? Was not youth the feeling which he enjoyed when, coming out again from the forest into the clearing, he saw in the clear sunlight Varenka's graceful figure in her yellow frock and with her basket, moving along with light steps past the bole of an ancient birch-tree, and the impression produced by the sight of Varenka blended with the surprising beauty of a field of oats shining yellow under the oblique rays of the sun, and beyond the field the old forest, variegated with yellow and stretching away into the azure distance his heart swelled with joy a feeling of tenderness seized him he felt within him that his mind was made up varenka who had just stooped down to pick up a mushroom with an agile motion straightened herself up again and glanced around sergey ivanovitch tossing away his cigar went toward her with resolute steps End of chapter four Part six, chapter five of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Vavaria Andreevna, when I was young, I formed for myself an ideal of the woman whom I should love, and whom I should be happy to call my wife. I have lived a long life, and now for the first time I find in you all that I was seeking. I love you, and I offer you my hand. Sergey Ivanovitch was saying these words to himself when he was within ten steps of Varenka. She was kneeling on the grass and defending with her hands a mushroom from Grisha, and at the same time calling to little Masha. Here, come here, little ones, lots of them, she cried in her deep, pleasant voice. 
Though she saw Sergey Ivanovitch approaching, she did not rise, nor did she change her position. But everything told him that she was aware of his presence, and was glad. "'Did you find any?' she asked, turning her sweet face toward him with a smile. "'Not one,' replied Sergey Ivanovitch. "'And you?' She made no reply, her attention being just then absorbed by the little children who surrounded her. "'Here's one for you near the twig,' and she pointed out a little agaricus pushing its elastic red cap through the dry grass, from which it was extricating itself. Varenka got up, after Masha had plucked the mushroom, breaking it into two white halves. "'That reminds me of my childhood,' she remarked, as she joined Sergey Ivanovitch and walked with him away from the children. They proceeded a few steps in silence. Varenka saw that he wanted to speak. She suspected what he had in mind, and felt stifled with the emotions of joy and terror. They had now gone so far from the rest that no one could have heard them, yet he had not opened his mouth to speak. Varenka would have done better not to say a word. After silence it would have been easier to say what they wanted to say than after any casual words. But against her own will, as if it were unexpectedly, Varenka broke out. And so you did not find any? but there are never so many mushrooms in the woods as along the edge. Sergey Ivanovitch sighed and made no answer. He was annoyed because she spoke about mushrooms. He wanted to bring her back to the first words which she had spoken about her childhood, but, as it were, contrary to his will, after a brief silence, he made an observation on what she had said last. I have heard that the white mushrooms are found preeminently on the edge of the forest, but I cannot tell them. A few moments more passed. They had gone still farther away from the children, and were wholly alone. Varenka's heart beat so violently that she heard its throbs, and she was conscious that she was blushing, turning pale, and then blushing again. To be the wife of such a man as Kuznoyeshev, after her position with Madame Stahl, seemed to her the height of happiness. Moreover, she was almost convinced that she was in love with him and this was to be decided immediately. It was a terrible moment for her, terrible, both what he would say and what he would not say. Now, or never, it would have to be decided. Sergey Ivanovitch also felt this. Everything in Varenka's looks, in her heightened color, in the way she dropped her eyes, betrayed the most painful expectation. Sergey Ivanovitch saw this and was sorry for her, he even felt that he should wrong her if he kept silence. He made an effort to recall his recent arguments in favor of making the decision. He even repeated to himself the words in which he was going to couch his declaration. But instead of these words, by some combination unexpected to himself, he asked, "'What is the difference between a white mushroom and a birch mushroom?' Varenka's lips trembled as she answered, "'There is very little difference in the cap but it lies in the root. As soon as these words were spoken, both of them felt that this was the end of it, that what should have been said would never be said, and the emotion which up to this moment had reached its highest pitch gradually died away. The birch mushroom, or its root, reminds me of a black beard which has not been shaved for two days, said Sergey Ivanovitch calmly. Quite true, answered Varenka, smiling and involuntarily the direction of their walk changed. They were going back toward the children. 
Varenka was puzzled and hurt, but at the same time she experienced a sense of relief. Sergey Ivanovitch mentally reviewed his arguments in favor of marriage, and found them mistaken. He could not be unfaithful to Marie's memory. "'Gently, children, gently!' cried Levin, testily, as the children sprang toward Kitty with shouts of glee. Behind the children came Sergey Ivanovitch and Varenka. Kitty needed not to question them. She knew by their calm and slightly mortified manner that the hope which she had been nursing would not be realized. "'Well, how is it?' her husband asked, when they returned to the house. "'It will not happen,' said Kitty, with a smile and manner which reminded him of her father, as Levin had often remarked to his delight. "'Why won't it happen?' "'This is why,' said she, taking his hand, raising it to her mouth, and touching it with her closed lips. "'As people kiss a bishop's hand.' "'Which one has failed of it?' he asked, laughing. "'Both. It must be so when—' "'Here come the muziks.' "'No, not yet.' End of chapter 5「six, Chapter six of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. While the children took their supper, the older people sat on the balcony and talked as if nothing had happened. But all, and especially Sergey Ivanovitch and Varenka, knew very well that an important event had occurred, although it was a negative one. The two experienced a feeling such as a boy has when, having failed in the examination, he is either kept in the same class, or is excluded forever from an institution. All present, feeling likewise that something had taken place, talked with forced animation. Levin and Kitty felt especially happy and in love with each other that evening, and that they were happy in their love seemed to make it impolite to comment on the unskillfulness of those who did not know how to be happy, and this made them feel guilty. "'Take my word for it. Alexander will not come,' said the princess. That evening they were expecting Stefan Arkadyevitch from the train, and the old prince had written that perhaps he, also, would come. "'And if he doesn't, I know why,' continued the princess, he says that young people ought to be left alone during the first part of their married lives. Yes, Papa is abandoning us for that very reason. He has not been to see us at all. But how are we, young folks? I am sure we are quite old. Only, if he does not come, and I have to take my leave of you children, said the princess, with a melancholy smile. What is the matter with you, Mamma? cried both daughters at once. You can think how it is with him. Here, now. And suddenly, and unexpectedly, the old princess's voice broke. The daughters exchanged glances in silence. Maman is always finding some melancholy topic, said their eyes. They did not know that, however pleasant it was for the princess to visit her daughters, and however necessary she felt that she was, nevertheless both she and her husband had been very sad ever since they had given up their last beloved daughter, and the family nest had become empty. "'What is it, Agafya Mikhailovna?' suddenly asked Kitty of the old housekeeper, whom she saw standing near her with a mysterious and significant look in her eyes. "'It is about supper.' "'Now, that is excellent,' said Dolly. 
You go and make your arrangements, and I will hear Grisha recite his lesson. He has not done anything all day. The lesson is my part. No, Dolly, I will go, cried Levin, springing up. Grisha, who had already entered the gymnasium, was obliged to keep up his lessons during the summer. Darya Alexandrovna, who had already begun, in Moscow, to study Latin with her son, now that she had come to the Levens, had made it a rule to go over with him, at least once a day, his most difficult lessons in Latin and arithmetic. Levin had taken it on himself to substitute for her. But the mother, having once listened while Levin was hearing the recitation, and noticing that he did not teach as the instructor in Moscow did, with an awkward attempt not to hurt his feelings, told Levin decidedly that he must go according to the book, as his tutor did, and that she had better take charge of his lessons again. Levin was annoyed with Stepan Arkadyevitch, owing to whose carelessness the mother had charge of the children's education, though she understood nothing about it at all, and he was annoyed with the teachers, because they had such bad methods of teaching. But he promised his sister-in-law that he would conduct the recitations as she wished and so he continued to take charge of Grisha's studies, no longer, however, in his own method, but according to the book, and therefore perfunctorily and frequently forgetting the lesson hour. And that is what had happened that day. "'No, I will go, Dolly, and you keep your seat,' said he. "'We are going along in due order by the book, only, now that Steva is coming, we shall be going hunting, so we shall have to neglect them.' and Levin went to find Grisha. Varenka was saying almost the same thing to Kitty. Varenka had found the way of being useful, even in the Levin's happy, well-ordered household. "'I will go and see about supper, and you keep your seat,' said she, and she joined Agafya Mikhailovna. "'Yes, yes, but you won't find the chickens, then,' said Kitty. "'Agafya Mikhailovna and I will settle the difficulty,' said Varenka, and disappeared with her. "'What a pretty girl!' exclaimed the princess. "'Not pretty, maman, but the charmingest girl in the world.' "'And so you are expecting Stefan Arkadyevitch, are you?' said Sergey Ivanovitch, evidently not liking to have the conversation about Varenka prolonged. "'It would be hard to find two brothers-in-law less alike,' said he, with a sly smile. "'One versatile, living only in society, like a fish in the water. The other, Arkostya.' full of life and activity, quick at everything, but as soon as he gets into society he either gives up the ghost or flops about aimlessly, like a fish on dry land. "'Yes, he is very heedless,' said the princess, addressing Sergey Ivanovitch. "'I wanted especially to ask you to persuade him that it is impossible for her,' she was referring to Kitty, "'to stay here. She certainly ought to be taken to Moscow. He says write for a doctor.' "'Maman, he is doing everything. He agrees to all you want,' said Kitty, vexed with her mother for drawing Sergey Ivanovitch into this matter as a judge. While they were talking, the whinnying of a horse on the driveway was heard, and the sound of wheels on the stones. Before Dolly could jump up to go and meet her husband, Levin jumped out of the window of the room downstairs where he was teaching Grisha, and put Grisha out. "'It's Steva!' cried Levin from below the balcony. "'We had finished, Dolly. Don't you worry,' he added, as the boy darted off to meet the carriage. "'Is a id a juice a juice a juice,' cried Grisha, as he ran down the avenue. "'And there is someone with him. It must be Papa,' 
cried Levin, standing at the entrance of the driveway. Kitty, don't come down by the steep stairs. Come round. But Levin was mistaken in thinking that the other man in the carriage was the old prince. When he came close, he saw, sitting next to Stepan Arkadyevitch, not the prince, but a handsome, portly young man in a Scotch cap with long floating ribbons. This was Vasenka Veslovsky, a third cousin of the Sherbatskys, a brilliant young member of Moscow and Petersburg society. One of the best fellows that ever lived, and a devotee of hunting, as Stefan Arkadyevitch expressed it in introducing him. Veslovsky was not in the least disconcerted by the surprise which his appearance, in place of the old prince, caused. He gaily greeted Levin, reminding him of their former acquaintance, and took Grisha into the carriage, lifting him up over the pointer which Stefan Arkadyevitch had brought with him. Levin did not get into the carriage, but followed on foot. He was somewhat put out by the non-arrival of the old prince, whom he liked better and better the more he saw him. He was still more put out at the appearance of this Fasenka Veslovsky, a man who was utterly unknown and superfluous. He seemed to him still more unknown and superfluous when, as Levin approached the front door, about which had collected a lively throng of old and young, he kissed Kitty's hand with a remarkably flattering and gallant look. "'Your wife and I are cousins and old friends,' said Vasenka Veslovsky, heartily pressing Levin's hand a second time. "'Well, how is it? Any game?' asked Stefan Arkadyevitch, addressing Levin almost before he had greeted the others. "'Vasenka and I have the most ferocious intentions. How are you, maman, since we saw each other in Moscow?' "'Well, Tanya, how goes it? "'Get the things from the back of the calash, please,' said he, addressing everyone at once. "'How well you look, Dolenka,' he said to his wife, again kissing her hand, holding it in his, and smoothing it. Levin, who a few minutes before had been in the happiest frame of mind, now looked at them all with indignant eyes, and everything disgusted him. "'Whom did he kiss yesterday with those same lips?' he queried, as he saw how affectionate Stefan Arkadyevitch was to his wife. He looked at Dolly, and even she was displeasing to him. Of course, she cannot believe in his love for her. How, then, can she seem so glad? Repulsive, said Levin to himself. He looked at the princess, who had seemed to him so charming a moment before, and her manner of receiving this Veslovsky and his ribbons, as if she were at home there, displeased him. Even Sergey Ivanovitch, who had come out on the porch with the rest, seemed to him disagreeable by reason of the hypocritical friendliness with which he met Stefan Arkadyevitch, for Levin knew that his brother neither liked nor respected Oblonsky. And Varenka disgusted him, because she, with her St. Natouche look, nevertheless met the stranger as if she thought only what sort of husband he would make for her. And most displeasing of all was Kitty as she fell into conformity with the tone of gaiety with which that gentleman regarded his visit, as if it were a festival for himself and all the rest. Especially disagreeable was the peculiar smile with which she responded to his smile. Noisily talking, they all went into the house, but as soon as they sat down, Levin turned on his heel and started off. Kitty saw that something was amiss with her husband, she wanted to take advantage of a favorable moment and have a little talk with him alone, but he hastened from her, declaring that he had business to attend to at the office. 
Not for a long time had his affairs seemed to him so important as they did at that day. It may be a holiday for them, he said to himself, but here are affairs of importance to be attended to, and they can't be delayed, and without them life could not be carried on. End of chapter 6 Part 6, Chapter 7 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel Only when they had sent to tell him supper was ready did Levin go back to the house again. On the stairway, Kitty and Agafya Mikhailovna were standing holding a consultation over the wines for supper. But why do you make such a fuss? Give them what you usually do. No, Steva doesn't drink. Kostya, wait. What is the matter with you? exclaimed Kitty, hastening after him. But he, without heeding her, went with long strides into the dining room, and immediately began to take part in the lively conversation which Vasenka Veslovsky and Stepan Arkadyevitch were enjoying. What do you say? Shall we go hunting tomorrow? asked Stepan Arkadyevitch. Please let us go, said Veslovsky, changing his seat to another chair and doubling his fat leg under him. "'I shall be very glad. Yes, we will go. Have you had any hunting this year yet?' asked Levin, looking at Veslovsky's leg. But his cordiality was put on, as Kitty could easily see, and did not become him. "'I doubt if we find any woodcock, but snipe are abundant. We shall have to start early. You will not be too tired. Are you tired, Steva?' "'I? Tired?' I don't know what it is to be tired. I'm ready to stay up all night. We'll go and take a walk. Certainly. Let us stay up all night. Capital, said Veslovsky. Oh, yes. We are agreed on that point. That you can stay up all night and also keep other people awake, said Dolly, in a tone of playful irony which she almost habitually employed in addressing her husband. In my opinion, I had better be going to bed. I won't eat any supper. I'll go now. No, Dalyanka, sit down, said Stefan Arkadyevitch, going to the other side of the great table and taking a seat near his wife. I've so many things to tell you about. Probably mighty little. Do you know, Veslovsky has been at Anna's. She lives only seventy versts away from here. He is going there when he leaves us, and I intend to go too. Veslovsky, come here. Vasenka approached the ladies and sat down next to Kitty. "'Oh, please tell us about it. Have you really been to Anna Arkadyevna's? How is she?' asked Darya Alexandrovna. Levin had remained at the other end of the table, and while he kept on talking with the princess and Varenka, he observed that Stefan Arkadyevitch, Dolly, Kitty, and Veslovsky were having an animated and mysterious conversation. Not only were they talking confidentially, but it seemed to him that his wife's face expressed a deep tenderness as— Without dropping her eyes, she looked into Vasenka's handsome face, while he was talking vivaciously. "'Their establishment is superb,' Vasenka Veslovsky was saying, in reference to Vronsky and Anna. "'Of course, I don't take it on myself to pass judgment on them, but when you are there in their house, you feel yourself at home.' "'What are their plans?' "'They would like to pass the winter in Moscow, I believe.' "'How jolly it would be for us to go there together.' "'When shall you go there?' Oblonsky asked Vasenka. "'I'm going to spend July with them.' 
"'And are you going?' he asked his wife. "'I have long been wanting to go, and I certainly shall,' said Dolly. "'I am sorry for her, and I know her. She is a lovely woman. When you have gone away, I shall go alone. That will not disturb any one, and it would be better for me to go without you.' "'Just the thing,' answered Stepan Arkadyevitch. "'And you, Kitty?' "'I? Why should I go to see her?' said Kitty, and blushing with vexation she glanced at her husband. "'Do you know Anna Arkadyevna?' asked Veslovsky. "'She is a very fascinating woman.' "'Yes,' answered Kitty, blushing still more, and she rose and joined her husband. "'So you are going hunting tomorrow, are you?' she asked him. Levin's jealousy during those few moments, and especially at the blush which covered her cheeks while she was talking with Veslovsky, had already reached an acute stage. Now, hearing her question, he interpreted it in his own way. Strange as it was afterward for him to remember this, and now it seemed clear to him that the reason for her asking him if he was going hunting, and for her interest in it, was to know if he would give Vasenka Veslovsky that pleasure and that proved that she was already in love with him. "'Yes, I am thinking of it,' he answered, in a voice so unnatural and constrained that he himself was horrified at it. "'Well, you had better stay at home to-morrow. Dolly has hardly seen her husband yet. Go day after to-morrow.' Levin now translated Kitty's words thus. "'Do not separate me from him. You may go. It is all the same to me. But let me enjoy the society of this attractive young man.' "'Oh, if you desire it, we will stay at home to-morrow,' answered Levin, with a special pleasantness. Meantime, Vasenka, not suspecting the effect his presence had produced, rose from the table and approached Kitty with an affectionate smile. Levin noticed that smile. He grew pale and for a moment could not get his breath. "'How does he dare to look at my wife in that way?' He was boiling. "'We are to go hunting to-morrow, are we not?' asked Vasenka, and he sat down in a chair and again doubled one leg under him, as his habit was. Levin's jealousy grew still more intense. Already he saw himself a deceived husband, whom his wife and her lover were plotting to get rid of, that they might enjoy each other in peace. Nevertheless, he asked Veslovsky, with all friendliness and hospitality, about his hunting gear, his guns and boots, and agreed to go the next day. To Levin's happiness, the old princess put an end to his torture by advising Kitty to go to bed. But even this was accompanied by new suffering for Levin. On bidding his hostess good-night, Vasenka tried to kiss her hand again. But Kitty, blushing and drawing away her hand, said, with a naive rudeness for which her mother afterward chided her, "'That is not the custom with us.' In Levin's eyes she was blameworthy for permitting such liberties with her, and still more so for being so awkward in showing her disapprobation. "'Why should you go to bed?' said Oblonsky, who had taken several glasses of wine at dinner, and was in his most genial and poetic mood. "'Look, Kitty,' said he, pointing to the moon just rising above the lindens. "'How lovely! Veslovsky, it is just the time for serenading. You know he has a splendid voice. He and I tried some on the way down. He has brought two new ballads with him.' He and Bavara might sing to us. After they had all left, Stefan Arkadyevitch and Veslovsky still for a long time walked up and down in the avenue, and their voices could be heard as they practiced singing over the new ballads. Hearing these voices, Levin sat scowling in an easy chair in his wife's room, 
and obstinately refused to answer her questions as to what was the matter with him. But at last Kitty, timidly smiling, asked him, "'Is there anything about Veslovsky that has displeased you?' This question loosened his tongue, and he told her all. What he said filled him with vexation, and he grew still more excited. He stood up in front of his wife, with his eyes flashing terribly under his contracted brows, and his hands pressed against his chest, as if exerting all his force to restrain himself. His face would have been harsh and even cruel, had it not expressed also such keen suffering. His cheeks trembled and his voice shook. "'Don't think me jealous. The word is disgusting. I could not be jealous, and at the same time believe that— I cannot tell you what I feel, but it is horrible to me. I am not jealous, but I am hurt, humiliated, that anyone should dare to look at you so. Why? Look at me how? asked Kitty, honestly trying to recall all the remarks and incidents of the evening and all their possible significance. In the depth of her heart she had thought that there was something peculiar at the time when Veslovsky followed her to the other end of the table, but she dared not acknowledge it even to herself, and still more she did not wish to say this to him, and thus increase his suffering. But what could he find attractive in me, in my condition? Oh, he cried, clutching his head, you should not have said that. That means, if you had been attractive. Now stop, Kostya, and listen to me, said Kitty, looking at him with a passionately compassionate expression. What can you be thinking about? You know you are the only person in the world for me. But you would not wish me to shut myself up away from everybody. At first she had been wounded by this jealousy of his, which spoiled even the slightest and most innocent pleasures. But she was ready now to renounce, not merely the trifling things, but everything, for the sake of calming him so as to cure him of the suffering which he was enduring. "'Try to understand all the horrible absurdity of my position,' he went on to say, in a whisper of despair. "'He is my guest, and if it were not for his silly gallantry, and his habit of sitting on his leg, he has certainly done nothing unbecoming. He certainly thinks himself irreproachable, and so I am obliged to seem polite.' "'But, Kostya, you exaggerate things,' said Kitty, glad at heart to see the force of his love for her, which was now expressed in his jealousy. But more terrible to me than all this is that, when you are an object of worship to me, and we are so happy, so peculiarly happy, this trashy fellow—but why should I call him names? He has done nothing to me. But why should our happiness—listen, Kostya, I believe I know what has offended you. Why is it? Why is it? I saw how you were looking when we were at supper. Well? Well? asked Levin excitedly. She told him what they were talking about, and as she recounted it, she sighed with her emotion. Levin was silent. Then, observing his wife's pale, excited face, he clutched his head again. Katya, cried he, I have tried you. Golubchik, forgive me. This is sheer craziness. I am a burden to you, Katya. I am a fool. How could I torture myself over such a trifle? I am sorry for you. For me? For me? That I am insane? But still, it is horrible to think that any stranger might destroy our happiness. 
course. This is outrageous. No, to disprove this, I will keep him with us all summer, and I'll spread myself in heaping favors on him, said Levin, kissing his wife's hands. You'll see. And tomorrow, yes, certainly tomorrow, we will go. End of chapter 7 Part 6, Chapter 8 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel The next morning the ladies were not yet up when the hunting traps were waiting at the door, and Laska, who since dawn had realized that hunting was in prospect, and having frisked and barked till she was tired, was sitting up on the katki next to the coachman, looking with excitement and disapprobation at the door at which the huntsmen were so provokingly dilatory in making their appearance. The first to appear was Vasenka Veslovsky, in a green blouse with a cartridge belt of fragrant Russian leather, shod in new high boots which reached halfway up his thighs, his scotch cap with ribbons on his head, and having an English gun of rather recent style, but without strap or bandolier. Laska sprang toward him and welcomed him, and asked in her way if the others were coming. But, receiving no answer, she returned to her post, and waited with bent head and one ear pricked up. At last the door opened noisily, and let out Crack, the pointer, circling round and leaping into the air, and after him came his master, Stepan Arkadyevitch, with gun in hand and cigar in mouth. "'Down, Crack, down!' exclaimed Oblonsky, caressingly to the dog which leaped up to his breast and caught his paws on his game-pouch. Stefan Arkadyevitch wore pigskin sandals, leggings, torn trousers, and a short overcoat. On his head was the ruin of what had once been a hat, but his gun was of the most modern pattern, and his game-bag, as well as his cartridge-box, though worn, were of the finest quality. Vasenka Veslovsky had never before realized the fact that the height of elegance for a huntsman is to be in rags, but to have the equipment of the finest quality. He understood this now, as he gazed at Stefan Arkadyevitch, whose elegant, well-nurtured, and aristocratic figure was so gaily brilliant, though in rags, and he made up his mind to profit by this example the next time he should go hunting. "'Well, where's our host?' asked he. "'He has a young wife,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, smiling. "'And how charming she is!' He must have gone in to see her again, for I saw him all ready to start. Stefan Arkadyevitch was right. Levin had gone back to Kitty to make her say over again that she forgave him for his absurd behavior of the evening before, and to ask her, for Christ's sake, to be more careful. The most important thing was for her to keep the children at a distance, for they were always likely to run into her. And then he needed once more to receive assurance from her that she would not be angry with him because he was going away for two days, and to reiterate his desire that she should infallibly send him a note the next morning by a mounted courier, if it were only two words, so that he might know that she was comfortable. Kitty, as always, had regretted the two days' separation from her husband, but, as she saw him full of animation, and seeming especially big and strong in his hunting-boots and white blouse, and recognized that, to her incomprehensible enthusiasm for hunting, she forgot her own regret in her delight in his happiness, and cheerfully bade him good-bye. "'Pardon, gentlemen,' cried Levin, hurrying down to the porch. "'Has breakfast been put up? 
Why is the chestnut horse on the offside? Well, then, it makes no difference. Down, Laska. Charge. Put him among the geldings, said he, addressing the cowherd who was waiting for him on the doorsteps with a question about the young ram. It is my blunder that he's become ugly. Levin jumped down from the catkey in which he had already taken his seat, and met a hired carpenter who was just approaching the porch. Now, yesterday evening you didn't come to my office, and here you are delaying me. Well, what is it? You bid me to make a new stairway. Three steps will have to be added, and we can get all the lumber at once. It would be much more convenient. You should have listened to me, said Levin, in a tone of annoyance. I said, fix the string boards, and then cut in the steps. Now, don't try to mend them. Do as I ordered. Make a new one. The matter in question was this. In the wing which was building, the carpenter had spoiled the staircase by framing it separately, and not taking the slope into account, so that the steps were all at an angle when it was put into its place. But now the carpenter wanted to add three steps, and still keep the same framework. It would be much better. But where would it go, even if you added three steps? Excuse me, said the carpenter, with a disdainful smile. It would go up to the same landing. Of course you'd pull it out below, said he, with a persuasive gesture. It will fit. It will surely fit. But three steps add to the length of it. How would that improve it? After an idle argument in which the carpenter kept obstinately repeating the same words, Levin took his ramrod and proceeded to outline the plan of the staircase in the dust. Now do you see? As you command, said the carpenter, with a sudden light flashing into his eyes, and evidently at last comprehending what Levin was driving at. I see. We shall have to make a new one. Well, then, do as you were ordered, cried Levin, taking his place in the katki again. Let us start. Hold the dogs, Philip. Levin, now that he had left behind him all domestic and business cares, felt such a powerful sense of the joy of living, and such expectation that he did not care to talk. Moreover, he experienced that sense of concentrated emotion which every huntsman feels as he approaches the field of his activity. If anything occupied him now, it was the question whether they should find anything in the Kolpensky marshes, and how would Laska come out in comparison with Crack, and what sort of luck would he that day enjoy? Should he do himself credit as a huntsman before this stranger? How would Oblonsky shoot? Better than he? Oblonsky was occupied with similar thoughts, and was not talkative. Vasenka Veslovsky was the only voluble one, and now, as Levin listened to him, he reproached himself for his injustice of the previous evening. He was a capital fellow, simple, good-natured, and very gay. If Levin had known him in his bachelor days, he would have become intimate with him. But Levin rather disliked his holiday view of life and a certain free and easy elegance. He seemed to arrogate to himself a marked and indubitable superiority because of his long fingernails and his little cap and everything else corresponding. But this could be condoned in view of his good nature and irreproachable manners. He pleased Levin because he was well-educated, and spoke French and English admirably, in fact, was a man of his own walk in life. Vasenka was completely carried away by the Stepnaya Donskaya horse on the left of the three-span. He kept going into raptures over her. How splendid it would be to gallop over the steppe, on a steed of the steppe! Isn't that so? he cried. He imagined that galloping over the steppe on such a horse was something wild and poetic, 
with no possibility of disappointment. But his innocence, especially in conjunction with his good looks, his pleasant smile, and his graceful motion, was very captivating. And because he was naturally sympathetic to Levin, or else because Levin, in consequence of his injustice to him the evening before, tried to find all his best qualities, they got on famously. They had gone scarcely three verse, when Veslovsky suddenly remembered his cigars and pocket-book, and could not tell whether he had lost them or left them on his table. There were three hundred and seventy roubles in the pocket-book, and he could not leave them so. "'Do you know, Levin, I could take your Cossack horse and gallop back to the house. It would be elegant.' "'Oh, no,' replied Levin, who calculated that Vasenka's weight might be not less than two hundred and forty pounds. "'My coachman can easily do the errand.' The coachman was sent back on the Cossack horse, and Levin drove on with the pair. End of chapter 8 Part 6, Chapter 9 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy Translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Well, what's our line of march? Give us a good idea of it, said Stefan Arkadyevitch. This is my plan. We will go first to Gvazdevo. Just this side of Gvazdevo is a snipe march, but on the other side of Gvazdevo extend splendid woodcock marshes, and there'll be game there. It's hot now, but towards the cool of the day— it's twenty versts from here. We will try the field. We will spend the night there, and then to-morrow we will strike into the great marshes. But isn't there anything on the way? Yes, but it would delay us, and it's too hot. There are two splendid little places, but it is hardly worth while. It was Levin's intention to attack these places, but as they were near home, he could go there at any time, and as they were small, he thought that three hunters were too many. Therefore, he prevaricated when he said that it was hardly worth while. When they came up to the little marsh, Levin was proposing to drive by, but Stepan Arkadyevitch, with the experienced eye of a huntsman, immediately saw the water-soaked ground which was visible from the road. "'Shan't we try that?' he asked, pointing to the marsh. "'Levin, please stop! How splendid!' Vasenka Veslovsky began to beg, and Levin could not well refuse." Before they had fairly stopped, the dogs, in eager emulation, darted into the marsh. Crack! Laska! The dogs turned back. There won't be room enough for three. I will wait here, said Levin, hoping that they would not find anything except lapwings, which flew up from in front of the dogs, and, as they skimmed away over the marshy ground, uttered the most mournful cries. No, come on, Levin, let's all go together, cried Veslovsky. It's a fact that there isn't room. Back, Laska, back. You don't need more than one dog, do you? Levin remained by the Lenitka, and with jealousy in his heart watched the huntsmen, who were tramping through the whole bog. There was nothing in it, however, except more hens and lapwings, one of which Vasenka killed. Now you see that I gave you good advice about the marsh, said Levin. It's only a waste of time. No, it's good fun all the same. "'Did you see?' exclaimed Vasenka, awkwardly climbing into the wagon with his gun and his lapwing in his hands. "'Didn't I make a stunning good shot? Well, will it take long to get to the other one?' Suddenly the horses plunged. Levin gave himself a violent bump on the head against someone's gun, and a shot went off. 
The gun really went off before, but it seemed to Levin the other way. It happened that Vasenko, in uncocking his gun, fired one barrel. The shot buried itself in the ground, and no damage was done to anyone. Stefan Arkadyevitch shook his head and laughed reproachfully at Veslovsky, but Levin had not the heart to rebuke him. In the first place, any reproach would seem to be called forth by a danger past and by the bump on his forehead, and in the second place, Veslovsky was so innocently filled with remorse and afterward laughed so good-naturedly and so contagiously over their common alarm that no one could help joining in. When they reached the second marsh, which was of considerable size and sure to occupy much time, Levin advised not getting out. But Veslovsky again put in his entreaties. Again, since the marsh was not big enough for three, Levin, like the hospitable host, remained by the teams. As soon as they stopped, Laska darted off to the tussocks. Vasenka Veslovsky was the first to follow the dog, and before Stefan Arkadyevitch reached the wet ground, a snipe flew up. Veslovsky missed it, and the bird flew over into an unmown meadow. But this snipe was predestined to be Veslovsky's. Crack again pointed it, and Veslovsky killed it and returned to the teams. "'Now you go, and I will stay by the horses,' said he. The huntsman's fever had by this time taken possession of Levin. He turned the reins over to Veslovsky and went into the swamp. Laska, who had been for some time pitifully whining and complaining at the inequality of fate, darted toward the tussock-filled bog which Levin knew so well, and to which Crack had not yet found his way. "'Why don't you hold her back?' cried Stefan Arkadyevitch. "'She won't scare them away,' replied Levin, delighting in his dog and following after her. As Laska went forward, the nearer she came to the tussocks, the greater grew her gravity. A little marsh bird, only for a second, distracted her attention. She made one sweep around the tussocks, then began a second, but suddenly trembled and stood stock still. "'Come, Steva, come!' cried Levin, feeling how his heart was beginning to throb, and how, suddenly, as if some bolt had slipped in his ears, all sounds, losing their sense of proportion, disconnectedly but distinctly began to come to him. He heard Stefan Arkadyevitch's steps, distinguishing them from the distant stamping of the horses. He heard the crunching sound of a corner of a tussock torn away by the roots, and he could distinguish above it the whir of a woodcock's wings. He could also hear, not far behind him, a strange splashing in the water, but what it was he could not make out. Choosing a place for his feet, he moved toward the dog, go on. Not a snipe, but a woodcock flew up from under the dog's nose. Levin raised his gun, but at the instant he aimed the same noise of splashing in the water grew louder and nearer, and together with it Veslovsky's voice loudly shouting something. Levin saw that he was aiming too far behind the woodcock, but still he fired. Turning round to discover what made the noise, Levin saw that the horses attached to the katki were no longer in the road, but were in the swamp. Veslovsky, desirous of watching the shooting, had driven down to the swamp and had entangled the horses. "'The devil take him!' said Levin to himself, turning back to the entangled horses. "'Why did you drive in so far?' he asked dryly, and summoning the coachman, he began to disengage the horses. Levin was vexed, because they had caused him to miss his shot, but still more so, because neither Stefan Arkadyevitch nor Veslovsky would help him to unharness and get out the team, but the reason for this was that they had not the slightest comprehension of the art of harnessing. 
not vouchsafing Vasenka a single word in answer to his assurance that where he stood it was perfectly dry, Levin silently worked with a coachman to unhitch the horses. But afterward, warming up to the work, and noticing how zealously and assiduously Veslovsky dragged at the kotki by its side, and even broke a part of it off, Levin blamed himself because, under the influence of the feeling which he had had the evening before, he had been too cool toward Veslovsky, and he tried by especial friendliness to atone for his curtness. When everything was brought to order again, and the teams were on the highway, Levin gave orders to get the luncheon ready. Bon appétit, bon conscience, c'est pour les vos tombes au fond de mes bottes, exclaimed Vasenka, growing lively again and employing a quaint French proverb as he devoured his second chicken. Now our misfortunes are ended. Now everything will go on famously. Only as punishment for my sin I must certainly sit on the driver's box. Isn't that so? Hey? No, no. I am a born Ottomendan. Just see how I will tool you along, he insisted, not letting go the reins when Levin asked him to give up to the coachman. No, I must atone for my sin, and I like it immensely on the box. And he drove. Levin was somewhat afraid that he would tire out the horses, especially the chestnut on the left, which he could not control, but reluctantly he gave in to his gaiety, listened to the love-songs which Veslovsky, sitting on the box, sang all the way, or to his stories and personation of an Englishman driving a foreign hand, and after they had enjoyed their luncheon they reached the marshes of Gustavo in the gayest possible spirits. End of chapter 9《パート6》Chapter 10 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne Spiegel. Vasenka drove the horses so furiously that they reached the marshes too early, and it was still hot. On reaching the important marsh, the real goal of their journey, Levin could not help wondering how he might rid himself of Vasenka and so get along without impediment. Stepan Arkadyevitch had evidently the same desire, and Levin could read in his face that expression of anxiety which a genuine huntsman always betrays before he goes out on the chase. He also detected a certain good-natured slyness characteristic of him. "'How shall we go in? I can see the marsh is excellent, and there are the hawks,' said Stepan Arkadyevitch, pointing to two big birds, circling over the tall grass. "'Where hawks are, there is sure to be game.' "'Well,' "'Do you see, gentlemen?' said Levin, with a rather gloomy expression, pulling up his boots and contemplating the caps on his fowling-piece. "'Do you see that tall grass?' He pointed to an islet, shading into a black green in the midst of the wet meadow, which, already half-mown, extended along the right bank of the river. "'The marsh begins directly in front of you, where it is so green. From there it extends to the right, where those horses are going. There are the tussocks, and you will find snipe there.' and so on around this high grass, clear up to the alders and the mill itself. That direction, you see, where the ground is overflowed, that is the best place. I have killed as many as seventeen woodcock there. We will separate with the two dogs in different directions, and then we will meet at the mill. Well, who will go to the right, who to the left? asked Stepan Arkadyevitch. There is more room to the right. You two go down that way, and I will take the left, said he with pretended indifference. "'Capital! We will shoot more than he does. Come on! Come on! Come on!' cried Veslovsky, 
Levin saw that he was in for it, so they started off together. As soon as they struck into the marsh, the dogs began to hunt round and darted off for the swamp. Levin well knew what that careful and indeterminate maneuver of Laska's meant. He also knew the place, and he was on the lookout for a bevy of woodcock. Veslovsky, come in line! In line! he cried in a voice of anguish to his companion, who insisted in falling behind. Since the accidental discharge of the weapon at the Kolpensky marsh, Levin could not help taking an interest in the direction in which Veslovsky's gun-barrel was pointing. "'Now, I won't bother you. Don't worry about me.' But Levin could not help worrying, and he remembered Kitty's words as she said good-bye to him. "'Look out that you don't shoot one another.' Closer and closer ran the dogs, avoiding each other, each following her own scent. The expectation of startling up a woodcock was so strong that the squeak of his heel as he lifted it out of the mud seemed to leaven like the cry of the bird. He clutched and squeezed the butt of his gun. Bang! Bang! A gun went off directly behind his ear. It was Vasenka, shooting at a flock of ducks which were splashing about in the swamp, and alighted far away from the huntsman in an irregular line. Before Levin had a chance to glance round, a woodcock drummed, another, a third, and half a dozen more flew up one after the other. Stefan Arkadyevitch shot one at the very instant he was about beginning his zigzags, and the woodcock fell in a heap in the swamp. Oblonsky took his time in aiming at another which was flying low towards the high grass, and simultaneously with the flash the bird fell, and it could be seen skipping from the mown grass flapping its white, uninjured wing. Levin was not so fortunate. He shot at too close range for the first woodcock, and missed. He was about to follow after it, but just as it was rising again, another flew up from almost under him and diverted his attention, causing him to miss again. While they were reloading, still another woodcock flew up, and Veslovsky, who had got his gun loaded first, fired two charges of small shot into the water, Stefan Arkadyevitch picked up his woodcock and looked at Levin with flashing eyes. "'And now let us separate,' said he, and limping with his left leg, and holding his gun ready cocked, and whistling to his dog, he started off by himself. Levin and Veslovsky took the other direction. It always happened with Levin that, when his first shots were unsuccessful, he grew excited, lost his temper, and shot badly the rest of the day. So it was in the present instance— the woodcock were abundant, they kept flying up from before the dogs, and from under the huntsman's feet, and Levin might have easily retrieved his fortunes, but the longer he hunted, the more he disgraced himself before Veslovsky, who kept merrily firing recklessly, never killing anything, and never in the slightest degree abashed at his ill luck. Levin moved forward hotly, growing more and more excited, and finally he came not to have much hope of bringing down his game. Laska seemed to understand this state of things. She began to follow the scent more lazily, and looked at the huntsman, with almost an air of doubt and reproach. Shot followed shot. The gunpowder smoke hung round the sportsman, but in the great wide meshes of the hunting-bag lay only three light little woodcock, and of those one was killed by Veslovsky, and one of them they both brought down. Meanwhile, on the other side of the swamp, Stefan Arkadyevitch's shots were heard, not very frequently, but, as it seemed to Levin, very significantly, and at almost each one he would hear him cry, "'Crack! Crack! A porte!' This still more excited Levin. 
The woodcock kept flying up into the air over the high grass. The drumming on the ground and the cries of the birds in the air continued incessantly on all sides, and the woodcock, which flew up before them and swept through the air, kept settling down again in front of the huntsman. Now, instead of two hawks, there were dozens of them screaming over the marsh. After they had shot over the larger half of the swamp, Levin and Veslovsky directed their steps to a place where there were alternating strips of meadowland which the peasants were accustomed to mow. Half of these strips had already been mown. Although there was less hope of finding game where the grass was tall than where it had been cut, Levin had agreed with Stefan Arkadyevitch to join him there, and so he proceeded with his companion across the mown and unmown strips. "'Hi, sportsman,' called a muzik, who with several others were sitting around an unharnessed cart. "'Come and have a bite with us. We'll give you some wine.' Levin looked round. "'Come on, we've got plenty,' shouted a jolly bearded muzik with a red face, displaying his white teeth and holding up a green bottle which glittered in the sun. "'Qu'est-ce qu'il descent?' asked Veslovsky. They invite us to drink some vodka with them. They have probably just finished their meadows. I'd go if I were you, said Levin, not without craftiness, for he hoped that Veslovsky would be tempted by the vodka and would go for it. Why should they treat us? Oh, they're probably having a jollification. Really, you had better go, and it will interest you. Allons, c'est curieux. Go ahead. You will find the road to the mill, cried Levin and looking round he saw to his delight that Veslovsky, stooping over and dragging one leg after the other, and carrying his musket on his outstretched arm, was making his way from the swamp toward the peasants. "'You come too,' cried the muzik to Levin. "'Don't be afeard. We'll give you a tart.' Levin felt a strong inclination to drink a glass of vodka and eat a piece of bread. He was tired and could hardly lift his feet out of the bog, and for a moment he hesitated. But the dog was pointing— and immediately all his weariness vanished, and he lightly made his way over the marsh toward the dog. The woodcock flew from under his feet. He fired and brought it down. The dog pointed again. Pill! From in front of the dog another arose. Levin blazed away. But the day was unfortunate. He missed, and when he looked for the one he had killed, it was nowhere to be found. He searched all through the tall grass, but Laska had no faith that her master had killed it, and when he sent her to find it, she pretended to circle round, but did not really search. Even without Vasenka, on whom Levin had laid the blame for his bad luck, there was no improvement. There also Woodcock abounded, but Levin missed shot after shot. The slanting rays of the sun were still hot. His clothes wet through with perspiration stuck to his body. His left boot, full of water, was heavy and made a sucking noise. Over his face, begrimed with gunpowder, the perspiration ran in drops. There was a bitter taste in his mouth. His nose was filled with the odor of smoke and of the bog. In his ears rang the incessant cries of the woodcock. His gun-barrels were so hot that he could not touch them. His heart beat with loud and rapid strokes. His hands trembled with excitement. His weary legs kept stumbling and catching in the roots and tussocks. But still he kept on shooting. At last, having made a disgraceful failure, he threw down his gun and cap. "'No, I must get my wits back,' he said to himself, and, picking up his gun and cap, he called Laska to heel and quitted the swamp. As he came out on the dry ground, he sat down on a tussock, took off his boots and stockings, poured out the water. Then he went back to the swamp, took a long drink of the boggy-smelling water, 
soaked his hot gun-barrels, and washed his face and hands. After he had cooled off, he again went down to the place where he would find the woodcock, and he made up his mind not to lose his self-control again. He meant to be calm, but it was the same as before. His finger would press the trigger before he had taken fair aim at the bird. Indeed, it went from bad to worse. He had only five birds in his game-bag when he quitted the marsh and went to the alder-wood where he had agreed to meet Stefan Arkadyevitch. Before he caught sight of Stefan Arkadyevitch, he saw his dog, Crack, all black with marsh slime, and with an air of triumph as he came leaping out from under the upturned root of an alder and began to snuff at Laska. Then appeared Stefan Arkadyevitch's stately figure in the shade of the alders. He came along, still limping, but with flushed face, all covered with perspiration, and with his collar flung open. "'Well, how many is it? Have you killed many?' he cried with a gay smile. "'How is it with you?' asked Levin. But there was no need of asking, because he could see his overflowing game-bag. "'Oh, just a trifle!' He had fourteen birds. "'What a splendid marsh! Veslovsky must have bothered you. Two can't hunt well with the same dog,' said Stefan Arkadyevitch, to soften the effect of his triumph." End of chapter 10When Levin and Stefan Arkadyevitch reached the peasant's izba, where Levin always stopped when he was out hunting, Veslovsky was already there. He was laughing his merrily contagious laugh, sitting in the middle of the hut, and clinging with both hands to a bench from which a soldier, the brother of their host, was pulling him in his efforts to haul off his muddy boots. "'I have only just gotten here. Ilant et Chamon. Imagine it. They gave me plenty to eat and drink. What bread! T'was marvellous. Delicieux! And such vodka I never tasted! And they utterly refused to take any payment. They kept saying, "'Drink it down,' or something like that. "'Why should they take money? They regarded you as a guest.' "'Do you suppose they had vodka to sell?' asked the soldier, who at last succeeded in pulling off the wet boot, together with the mud-stained stocking. Notwithstanding the dirtiness of the izba, which the huntsmen and their dogs had tracked all over with mud, notwithstanding the smell of bog and gunpowder with which it was filled, and notwithstanding the absence of knives and forks, the three men drank their tea and ate their luncheon, with appetites such as only hunting produces, after they had washed up and cleansed off the mud, they went to a hayloft where the coachman had prepared them beds. Although it was already dark, not one of the huntsmen felt any inclination to go to sleep. After they had indulged in various recollections, and stories of shooting of dogs, and of previous expeditions, the conversation turned on a theme which interested them all. As it happened, Vasenka kept going into raptures over the fascination of this their camp, and the fragrance of the hay and the charm of the broken Talyega, it seemed to him to be broken because the front part was taken off, and about the hospitality of the Muziks, who had given him vodka to drink, and about the dogs, which were lying each at his master's feet. Then Oblonsky gave an account of a charming meet which he had attended the summer before at the place of a man named Malthus, who was a well-known railway magnate. Stefan Arkadyevitch told what wonderful marshes and game preserves Malthus rented in the government of Tver, 
what equipages, dog-carts, and wagonettes were provided for the sportsmen, and how a great breakfast-tent was carried to the marshes and pitched there. "'I can't comprehend you,' exclaimed Levin, raising himself on his hay. "'I should think such people would be repulsive to you. I can understand that a breakfast with Lafitte might be very delightful, but isn't such luxury revolting to you? All these people, like all monopolists, acquire money in such a way that they gain the contempt of people. They scorn this contempt, and then use their ill-gotten gains to buy off this contempt. "'You're perfectly right,' assented Veslovsky. "'Perfectly. Of course Oblonsky does this out of Bohem. But others say, Oblonsky goes there.' "'Not in the least,' Levin perceived that Oblonsky smiled as he said this. "'I simply consider that this man is no more dishonorable than any other of our rich merchants and nobles. They all have got their money by hard work and by their brains.' "'Yes, but what kind of hard work? Is it hard work to secure a concession, and then farm it out?' "'Of course it is hard work. Hard work in this sense, that if it were not for such men, then we should have no railways.' "'But it is not hard work such as the music or the student has.' "'Agreed. But it is work in this sense, that it is a form of activity which gives us results. Railways. But perhaps you argue that railways are useless.' No, but that is another question. I am willing to acknowledge that they are useful, but all gains that are disproportionate to the amount of labor expended are dishonorable. But who is to determine the suitability? Property acquired by any dishonest way, by craft, said Levin, feeling that he could not very well make the distinction between honorable and dishonorable. For example, the money made by stock gambling, he went on to say, that is bad, and so are the gains made by fortunes acquired without labor, as it used to be with the speculators in monopolies. Only the form has been changed. Le Roy est mort, viva le Roy. We had only just done away with brandy farming when the railways and stock gambling came in. It is all money acquired without work. Yes, that may be very wise and ingenious reasoning. Lie down, crack, cried Stepan Arkadyevitch, addressing the dog which was licking his fur and tossing up the hay. Oblonsky was evidently convinced of the correctness of his theory, and consequently argued calmly and dispassionately. But you do not make the distinctions clear between honest and dishonest work. Is it dishonest when I receive a higher salary than my head clerk, although he understands the business better than I do? I don't know. Well, I will tell you one thing. What you receive for your work on your estate is, let us say, five thousand above your expenses. But this music, our host, hard as he works, does not get more than fifty roubles. And this disparity is just as dishonorable as that I receive more than my head clerk, or that Malthus receives more than a railway engineer. On the contrary, it seems to me the hostility shown by society to these men arises from envy. No, that is unjust, said Veslovsky. It cannot be envy, and there is something unfair in this state of things. Excuse me, persisted Levin. You say it is unfair for me to receive five thousand, while the music gets only fifty. You're right. It is unfair. I feel it. But— The distinction holds throughout. Why do we eat, drink, hunt, waste our time, while he is forever and ever at work? said Vasenka Veslovsky, who was evidently for the first time in his life thinking clearly on this question— and therefore was willing to be frank. 
"'Yes, you feel so, but you don't give your estate up to the music,' said Stepan Arkadyevitch, not sorry of a chance to tease Levin. Of late there had arisen between the two brothers-in-law a secretly hostile relationship. Since they had married sisters, a sort of rivalry existed between them as to which of them had the best way of living, and now this hostility expressed itself by the conversation taking a personal turn. "'I do not give it up because no one demands this of me.' and even if I wanted to, I could not, replied Levin. Give it to this music. He would not refuse it. But how could I give it to him? Should I come with him and sign the deed? I don't know, but if you are convinced that you have not the right— I am not altogether convinced. On the contrary, I feel that I have no right to give it away, that I have certain obligations both to the land and to my family. No, excuse me. If you consider that this inequality is unjust, then why don't you do so? I do it, only in a negative way, in the sense that I do not try to increase the discrepancy that exists between him and me. No, but that is a paradox, if you will allow me to say so. Yes, that is a sort of sophistical statement, averred Veslovsky. Ho, oh, friend, he exclaimed, addressing their host, who had just then come into their loft, making the door creak on its hinges. Aren't you asleep yet? No, how can one sleep? But I supposed you gentlemen were asleep. Still, I heard talking. I wanted to get a hook. Will she bite? He added, carefully slipping along in his bare feet. But where do you sleep? We are on night duty. Oh, what a night! exclaimed Veslovsky, catching a glimpse of the edge of the izba and the unharnessed wagons in the faint light of the west through the now widely opened door. Just listen to those women's voices singing. It is not bad at all. Who is singing, friend? said he, addressing the music. Oh, those are the girls from the farm, singing together. Come, let us go out and take a walk. We shall never go to sleep. Come on, Oblonsky. What's the use? said Oblonsky, stretching. It's more comfortable here. Well, then, I'll go alone, exclaimed Veslovsky, jumping up eagerly and putting on his shoes and stockings. "'Good-bye, Dasvidanya, gentlemen. If there's any fun, I will come and call you. You have given me a good hunting, and I won't forget you.' "'He's a splendid young fellow,' said Oblonsky, after Veslovsky had gone out and the music had shut the door again. "'Yes, he is,' replied Levin, still continuing to think of what they had been talking about. It seemed to him that he had clearly, to the best of his ability, uttered his thoughts and feelings, and yet these men, who were by no means stupid or insincere, agreed in declaring that he indulged in sophistries. This confused him. And this is the way of it, my friend, said Oblonsky. One of two things must be. Either you must agree that the present order of society is all right, and then stand up for your rights, or confess that you enjoy unfair privileges, as I do, and get all the good out of them that you can. No, if this was unfair, you could not get any enjoyment out of these advantages. At least I could not. With me, the main thing would be to feel that I was not to blame. After all, why should we not go out, said Stepan Arkadyevitch, evidently growing tired of this discussion. You see we are not going to sleep. Now come on, let's go out. Levin made no reply. What he had said in their conversation about his doing right only in a negative sense occupied his mind. Can one be right only in a negative way? he asked himself. How strong the odor of the fresh hay is, 
said Stepan Arkadyevitch, as he got up. It is impossible to go to sleep. Vasenka is hatching some scheme out there. Don't you hear them laughing, and his voice? Won't you come? Come on. No, I'm not going, said Levin. Is this also from principle? asked Stepan Arkadyevitch, with a smile, as he groped round in the darkness for his cap. No, not from principle. But why should I go? Do you know you are laying up misfortune for yourself? said Stepan Arkadyevitch, having found his cap and getting up. Why so? Don't I see how you are giving in to your wife? I heard how much importance you attached to the question whether she approved of your going off for a couple days hunting. That is very well as an idol, but it doesn't work for a whole lifetime. A man ought to be independent. He has his own masculine interests. A man must be manly, said Oblonsky, opening the door. What does that mean? Going and flirting with the farm girls? asked Levin. Why not go, if there's fun in it? Sinatar pas a consequence. My wife would not be any the worse off for it, and it affords me amusement. The main thing is the sanctity of the home. There should not be any trouble at home. But there is no need of a man's tying his hands. Perhaps not, said Levin dryly, and he turned over on his side. Tomorrow I must start early, and I shan't wake anyone, and I shall start at daybreak. Messieurs, venez vite, called Vasenka, returning. Charmant, I have discovered her, Charmant, a perfect Gretchen, and she and I have already scraped acquaintances. Truly, she is mighty pretty, he cried, with such an expression of satisfaction that anyone would think that she had been made for his especial benefit, and that he was satisfied with the work of the one who had prepared her for him. Levin pretended to be asleep, but Oblonsky, putting on his slippers and lighting a cigar, left the barn, and soon their voices died away. It was long before Levin could go to sleep. He heard his horses munching their hay, then the music setting out with his eldest son to watch the animals in the pasture, then the soldier going to bed on the other side of the loft with his nephew, the youngest son of their host. He heard the little boy in a low voice telling his uncle his impressions regarding the dogs, which to him seemed terrible and monstrous beasts, then the boy asking what those dogs caught, and the soldier, in a hoarse and sleepy voice, telling him that the next day the huntsmen would go into the swamp and would fire off their guns. And then, the boy still continuing to ply him with questions, the soldier hushed him, saying, "'Go to sleep, Vaska, go to sleep, and you will see.' And soon the man began to snore, and all became quiet. All that was heard was the neighing of the horses and the cries of the woodcock. "'Why is this simply revolting?' he asked himself. "'Well,' What is to be done? It is not my fault. And he began to think of the morrow. Tomorrow. I will start early in the morning, and I will take it on myself not to get excited. I will bring down some woodcock, and there are plenty of snipe, and when I get back there'll be a letter from Kitty. Yes, perhaps Steva is right. I am not manly toward her. I am too much under my wife's thumb. But what is to be done about it? This also is revolting. Through his dream he heard Veslovsky and Stepan Arkadyevitch gaily talking and laughing. For an instant he opened his eyes. The moon had risen, and through the open doors he saw them standing there in the bright moonlight and talking. Stepan Arkadyevitch was saying something about the freshness of a young girl, comparing her to a walnut just out of its shell. And Veslovsky, laughing his contagious laugh, made some reply, 
evidently repeating the words spoken by some music, you'd better be going home. Levin spoke through his dream. Gentlemen, tomorrow at daybreak. End of chapter 11「What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.